Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. The story of the West Mesa murders begins outside Albuquerque, New Mexico, on a high desert plateau that rises up over the Rio Grande. In 2009, 11 decomposed corpses were found buried here. It took the Albuquerque police months to uncover all the bodies, which were scattered over a 92-acre swath of land owned by a home developer. All of them were women between the ages of 15 and 32, and most were Hispanic. Nearly all of them were sex workers. Police believe a serial killer is responsible for their deaths. The women went missing between 2001 and 2005, long before their bodies were uncovered, which has made solving their crimes very, very difficult. By the time investigators found the remains, all that remained of these women were their bones. Will the West Mesa bone collector ever be caught? It's going to be difficult to provide closure to these killings. Are there any suspects who really, really look like they're responsible for these murders? Yes, there sure are. And we're going to look at those suspects and look into a whole lot more in today's true crime 200th episode, shroomed and doomed edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the 200th Monday episode of Time Suck. For the 100th episode, we did the drunk as fuck suck, and I wanted to go bigger this time. So, this is the shroomed and doomed suck. Help me, Nimrod. Don't fuck with me today, Lucifina. Guide me, Bojangles, and soothe me, Triple M. Give me a good trip. I'm Dan Cummins, a master sucker, disciple of Nimrod, and you're listening to a very odd edition of Time Suck, recorded uh, here in a sunny CDA, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, with the Reverend Dr. Joe Horscock Johnson Paisley, the script keeper, Zach Flannery, queen of bad magic, Lindsay Cummins, and the Bad Magic merch, and more minds, Logan and Kate Keith, all here in the Suck Dungeon. Uh, this is your first episode. Oh, boy. Uh, this is not how I normally do the show. Not at all. Shortly before this recording, uh, I ate a big, uh, uh, you know, a bunch of shrooms, a couple caps, several large stems, 
uh, psilocybin mushrooms, aka magic mushrooms, aka hallucinogens, aka just kidding. If uh, if anybody out there is in the legal field, but not kidding. Uh, and they're going to kick in sometime in the next hour. Uh, should peak mid-show. We're going to see how this goes. My wife, Lindsay, queen of bad magic, may have to help guide me to the back half of the notes. Uh, thank you all so much for being a part of this journey. 200 episodes. We're still growing. So grateful. Uh, still enjoy doing this. This podcast has now launched other podcasts like the Patreon Secret Suck, the horror podcast Scared to Death, now growing faster than Time Suck, actually. And soon, Joe Dick and I are going to have a Wednesday comedy podcast called Is We Dumb? The trailer drops this week, July 15th. First two episodes come out on August 12th. Joe's birthday. Yay, birthday boy. Uh, it's going to be a beefed up version of the Idiots of the Internet, a mockery of ignorant web culture, every Wednesday on the Bad Magic YouTube channel and on various podcast directories and will come out at noon Pacific time. Uh, in, the first, in the first week, August 12th, is going to be two episodes. So, so please subscribe. And thank you, Spacers, for playing with the new Time Suck trivia game on the Time Suck app. Get my ass kicked on trivia. Doing way worse than I thought I would do. Uh, answering questions about topics I've covered. Uh, thank you again to all the Space Scissors for allowing Bad Magic Productions to donate $6,100 this month to the Innocence Project. Thank you, thank you. Founded in 1992, the Innocence Project, founded by two attorneys, they exonerate the wrongly convicted through DNA testing and reform the criminal justice system to prevent future injustice. To find out more, go to theinnocentproject.org. Link in the episode description. Uh, one last thing before we get into the content uh, got the Kemper Zapples tank tops back in the store for summer, back at badmagicmerch.com. Mother, why won't you let me get a tank top? I don't want to pit out when I'm putting heads on sticks. So badmagicmerch.com for that and so much more. Uh, now let's get weird. Let's head down to New Mexico, a state that feels like the perfect backdrop for a tale told while under the influence of an illicit substance. Poor New Mexico. I've been to Albuquerque several times, uh, to Tucson, to beautiful Santa Fe, a lot of cool spots in the land of enchantment, but thanks to Breaking Bad, I mostly associate New Mexico with meth. Uh, maybe I should have done some meth for this suck. Uh, no, no, there's never a right time for meth. We've learned that on the suck here before. Uh, no meth, no meth for the for the 300th episode uh, either. All right, let's get started. The Space Lizards chose this week's uh, topic, multi-murder mystery. If you like the Alphabet Murders Suck episode or the 1977 Girl Scout Murders episode, you'll most likely enjoy this tale of another uncaught killer. This one dubbed both the 118th Street serial killer and more infamously uh, known as the West Mesa Bone Collector. And the West Mesa Bone Collector sounds more like a paranormal monster than a serial killer. If I came across a trailer for a movie with that title, uh, I am for sure watching. Sounds terrifying. Sounds like a creature you only see in nightmares, something that doesn't come out to play when the lights are on. Locally, the murders committed by the West Mesa Bone Collector quickly became known as the 118th Street Homicides due to the location where the bodies were found. The murders also came to be known collectively as Albuquerque's Crime of the Century. Today, we'll look at just about everything there is to look at concerning these crimes. Unfortunately, there is not a ton of info out there about these murders, but there is more than enough to make for an interesting true crime episode. Um, we'll, we'll start by looking at the crime scene. Look at the murders themselves, get to know, uh, uh, you know, some of the victims a little bit. Then we'll look into law enforcement's investigation into these murders, which will lead us into a little exploration of Albuquerque's criminal underbelly, which will then take us into some stats regarding violent crime rates for female victims in the U.S., especially those who are sex workers, followed by an examination of the main suspects in the West Mesa Bone Collector case. A uh, few men in particular especially look like strong candidates 
for being the dirtbag responsible for these murders. If these murders are somehow solved, I I will be shocked if one of these pieces of shit is not responsible. Uh, Finally, we'll wrap up by taking a a peek at a few other serial killers who've also killed sex workers and may be out there on the loose. Uh, One actually recently not on the loose, so that's exciting. Uh, What we're not going to do today is definitively solve the case. Such a frustrating murder mystery, such a cold case. There was a great deal of urgency concerning discovering the identity of the killer or killers when the bodies were first discovered February of 2009. Of course there was. But now more than a decade later, who the killer is or who the killers are uh, remains a mystery. So many dead bodies, so little evidence. Uh, There'll be no timeline today. It's not that clean of a story. So let's just start off and uh, head to West, West Mesa, New Mexico. Start telling this tale. The unincorporated area of West Mesa Not the West Mesa uh, neighborhood inside of Albuquerque, but the actual West Mesa area outside the city uh, sits south of and just outside of Albuquerque on a high desert plateau rising up over the Rio Grande, one of the principal rivers of the southwestern United States, northern Mexico. Uh, Just a few decades ago, the landscape of West Mesa was one of tumbleweeds and sunburnt desert competing for space with half-built subdivisions and trailer parks with names like Desert Spring Flower, Paradise Hills. Decades ago, West Mesa was almost nothing but desert, hardly populated western outskirt of Albuquerque. But in the 1980s, when Albuquerque began to really grow quickly, West Mesa saw significant growth as well. The population jumped from roughly 40,000 people back in 1980 to roughly 200,000 people today. The area has been populated for a long time, but was rural until fairly recently. The Tanoan and Karasun people settled in the area sometime in the 13th century. Today, a neighborhood in Albuquerque is named Tanoan East. Historic tribal pueblos and petroglyphs still surround the city. Before them, uh, unknown nomadic peoples had lived in the area going back roughly 12,000 years. Then the Spanish founded the town known as Albuquerque in 1706. The name coming from the Latin words albus and quercus means white oak. A still standing church is in town from that era, San Felipe de Neri. was built in 1793. New Mexico became uh, part of Mexico in 1821, then part of the United States in 1848. The railroad arrived in 1880, and yet still, as of 1900, the city had only roughly 8,000 people. Then the famous highway Route 66 made it to town in 1926, and dozens of motels and restaurants sprang up to serve thousands of new travelers moving into the city. By 1960, over 200,000 people lived in the area. By the time of today's murders, the Albuquerque uh, area was one of the fastest growing metro areas in the U.S. As the city spread outward, its downtown died like the downtowns of so many other U.S. cities had died, killed by suburban sprawl. Big box stores and shopping malls sprang up in the suburbs. Downtown businesses failed, were replaced by pawn shops, liquor stores, homelessness, prostitution, and crime. Out on the edges of the suburbs, tumbleweeds gave way to numerous housing projects that began to crop up in the 90s and early 2000s during a huge building boom all across America. Housing development started to pop up all over the place as the U.S. economy surged in the early 2000s. Then shit hit the fan in Albuquerque around 2007, maybe late 2006. The local real estate bubble started to stretch too thin. Home prices began to drop drastically when it popped. In 2008, when the national real estate market collapsed and things really popped, numerous housing developers in West Mesa put their plans on hold like many other developers across America. A wave of foreclosures followed. Now the suburbs that had killed downtown were pretty damn sick themselves. West Mesa suddenly on life support. Many West Mesa residents now lived in a new ghost town, you know, of a neighborhood with only a handful of completed houses surrounded by plots of land next to them that either had unfinished structures on them or remained cleared for buildings that were 
not now, you know, not going to have anything built on them anytime soon. Many of those spaces still have nothing built on them. Life in Albuquerque and West Mesa became far from ideal. Still pretty rough. Crime in West Mesa, 161% higher than the national average. You have a one in 15 chance of being a crime victim. The high school graduation rate, 19% lower than the national average. Only 67% of area youth graduate high school. One in three don't. It's crazy. Uh, The median household income is 36% lower than the national average. Income per capita, 41% lower than average. A lot of crime, a lot of poverty, a lot of desert in West Mesa. Good combination for people to go missing and for people to stay missing. And this is where today's murder victims' bodies were found in West Mesa. Specifically, they were found just off of West Mesa's 118th Street. 118th Street Southwest still runs on the very edge of West Mesa, where development meets desert. If you're from the area, uh, the, the area where the bodies were found was actually near where 118th meets Senator Dennis Chavez Boulevard, which according to satellite photos and Google Maps, remains undeveloped desert. I scoped out the area uh, using Google Street View and truly just the, just the beginning of hundreds of square miles of completely undeveloped desert. Sagebrush and reptiles, it's, uh, it's pretty barren. Back on February 2nd, 2009, new resident Christine Ross and her dog Ruka Three-year-old Sharpay Lab Mix were walking down 118th Street Southwest. Uh, Christine had just moved to the area in the fall of 2008 when she got gotten uh, one hell of a deal on a new house back in the uh, real estate sale of the century. She bought a newly built home for, uh, I'm guessing, probably less than it cost to build it and her, uh, with her husband, uh, not named in articles about the case. And, uh, and now, you know, she and her husband and their dog, Ruka, live in there. And Christine and her husband would take Ruka for walks around the new neighborhood almost every night, taking vistas of Track housing and desert and projects frozen in mid-development and trash dumped out in the desert for as far as the eye could see. Just living the dream. <laughs> the trio would walk past scattered homes and question probably all their life choices that led up to the moment they decided to buy that house. Hey, come on. Some people love the desert. Some people love the, the hot and dry and sunny days and cool, dry nights. Actually, as deserts go, Albuquerque, not bad. Uh, in July, the average temperature during the day climbs to 93 degrees Fahrenheit. Yes, very hot. But it does drop to 66 at night. And by October, it's dropping to 46 at night. I mean, it's desert, but it is high desert. Altitude is over 5,300 feet above sea level. Much cooler than many other deserts. Uh, KB Homes, a Southwest real estate development company, had purchased nearly 100 acres of land near Kristen's home in the hopes of building a sprawling subdivision. That subdivision yet to be built. Instead of purchasing a future subdivision, KB Homes, you know, really just bought a burial ground. On Monday, February 2nd, 2009, Christine and her husband's uh, and her husband and the dog uh, they, the dog finds a bone sticking halfway out of the ground. A couple initially not concerned, but then they take a closer look at Ruka's new find and they know something's wrong. The bone looks human. So much so that Christine takes it from Ruka, snaps a pic with her phone, sends the picture to her sister, a registered nurse. Christine's sister confirmed her suspicion. To her, it looked like a human femur. Also known as your thigh bone, right? As the dry bones children's song goes. Your knee bone connected to your thigh bone. Your thigh bone connected to your hip bone. That song goes on and on, by the way. It's the longest song. Uh, Christina and her husband had their dog put down the next day, sadly. A tough call, but the right call. I don't know if you know this, but once a dog has a taste for human flesh, you cannot teach them not to crave it. I would do the same thing to my dogs, Penny and Ginger, in a heartbeat if I had to. I talk to my kids all the time about not getting too close to our dogs for this exact reason. One bone. One bone. I'll kill them both, and I'll bury them in the yard. The dogs. Not the kids, I don't think. Christine did not kill her dog. (laughs) I'm not going to kill mine. That was all crazy talk. Bojangles is laying under my desk uh, right now growling. Uh, he didn't care for that nonsense. I imagine many of you didn't either. Uh, easy Bojangles. Easy Bojangles. Come on. Just joking around. 
And this shit is kicking in, by the way. For those of you listening, oh boy, things are already starting to get a little weird. Uh, <laughs> uh, Christine and her husband immediately notified the Albuquerque Police Department, and they officially determined that the bone was indeed a human femur. APD secured the area around where the leg was found, began to dig into what is now an active crime scene. They figured that odds are, if you, you, know, if you find one human bone laying around, you're probably going to find more. And they were right. Uh, soon, more than two dozen detectives working in the area, along with other experts like anthropologists, medical investigators, as well as a number of other volunteers. The search proved to be extremely challenging. It would go on for about a year. The ground where the femur was found had been prepped for construction before being abandoned to the elements. Many of the remains heavily disturbed in the construction process. Despite the remains being a bit scattered, investigators were able to piece together numerous different women's remains. The more they would dig, the more bones they would find. Shortly after starting their search for the rest of the skeleton that first femur belonged to, they realized they were dealing with more than just one body. And then shortly after that, they realized they were dealing with a whole bunch of bodies. Their search eventually spread across a 92-acre area, huge area to dig up. 92 acres is almost exactly 70 football fields worth of ground. That's a lot of earth, a lot of desert to comb over and dig into to find remains that have been dumped years earlier. Some of the remains have been buried deep. Some of the bones investigators unearthed have been buried 15 feet into the ground. Uh, some reports, you know, looking into this would say shallow graves. No, 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 not shallow graves. Uh, some of these uh, up to 15 feet deep. Some victims' remains were found either partially intact or fully intact, making victim identification easier. But a lot of the remains, you know, have been partially destroyed, again, by that, you know, heavy construction. Other remains partially destroyed by scavenger animals. Authorities soon knew they were dealing with something really, really terrible, like a serial killer. But they'd wait a week to make that announcement to the public. They still didn't know for sure how many victims were buried in the dirt next to 118th Street Southwest, and they had no idea how these women had died, let alone who had killed them. All they had were a lot of heavily decomposed remains. All they had were a lot of bones. APD made their first announcement a few weeks after the investigation began when they were able to identify one of the victims. Her name was Victoria Ann Chavez, young single mother of two. She'd fallen into a life of prostitution and drug use, been in and out of jail on a number of prostitution charges. She'd had repeated run-ins with law enforcement and her probation officer before disappearing and being declared missing by her mother in the summer of 2004. No one in her family had actually seen her since June 5th, 2003. When she went missing, she was only 25 years old. What kind of drug use had she fallen into? None of the articles written about her say. I'm guessing based on numerous other articles about area prostitution and drug abuse, it was meth. Breaking Bad did not just choose Albuquerque to serve as the series location because it was cheap to film there. I'm sure that was part of the reason. Uh, but also meth really has been a huge problem in Albuquerque for quite some time, complete with big Mexican drug cartels that move millions and millions of dollars of meth throughout uh, New Mexico, you know, just like the TV show. Uh, when drug use is mentioned in connection to numerous victims in this episode and the drug is not named, I feel like there's always a pretty good chance it was probably meth. What a terrible drug. Super dangerous drug. An educational nonprofit called the Global Drug Survey runs the largest drug surveys in the world, arguably gathers the most illicit drug data in the world to help healthcare professionals and policymakers around the world understand which types of drugs are most prominent among certain populations, which drugs appear to be on the rise or on the decline, and how drug usage affects the health of populations worldwide. And in 2017, meth was listed as the world's most dangerous drug because roughly 5% of users would... uh. Uh, worldwide end up requiring emergency medical assistance after taking it. It's a cheap, dirty drug, highly addictive, often mixed with dangerous chemicals when it's cut down to be sold on the street. It's not a super safe and fun drug to use like, like shrooms. Uh, the same study said that everyone should use shrooms, said that even babies can use them. 
<laughs> probably should said uh put some magic mushrooms in those bottles and sit back and enjoy the show jk <laughs> no jk i'll wait until you're older kids then maybe do hallucinogens. Just don't do them near knives or other weapons or do them on the roof or near an open elevator shaft or near a busy street or around people you hate or you, you fuck, you get it. <laughs> Just like not every place is the safest place to get hammered. Uh, not every place, safest place to trip. Uh, PSA over. And I do want to say, by the way, because this is in my mind now, uh, this was a spaces or chosen topic. So I didn't pick this topic to do shrooms to because I, I realize I'm fighting these thoughts. It's like, it's fucked up. It's this dark story, but my mind's real happy right now. But I want you to know my mind's not happy about the content. Uh, back to the remains of the first victim. Victoria Ann Chavez, his femur that Ruka the dog had found, it was her body that was the first to be excavated. She'd been buried just 18 inches under the dirt and no clothing or any other personal items were found near her completely decomposed skeletal remains. So some shallow graves, some that weren't. Uh, her dental records were the only thing that made it possible to uh, identify her. No DNA evidence was found near the bones. Any blood or semen from a possible murderer that may have, uh, you know, one time been on or or near her body, long gone by the time investigators dug into the dirt around her. No murder weapon, no clue of any kind found near her body. Her remains so badly decomposed, she'd been in the ground for four to five years, uh, the cause and time of her death were, was impossible to determine. Now, how she was killed, impossible to determine. On February 21st, 2009, police find the bodies of two more females. Two days after that, a fourth woman is found. Four bodies, and they're far from done digging. The remains uh, of her unborn child somewhere near the start of the second trimester, also found along with the fourth victim. So an unborn fifth victim. The fetus's bones would be submitted to a medical examiner and in the lengthy process, it would take several months to learn more. The fetus was found to be around four months along the beginning of the second trimester, speculated that the woman may have not even known she was pregnant. Uh, the pregnant woman also identified through dental records, Gina Michelle Valdez. Yeah, there we go. Gina Michelle Valdez. Gina went by her middle name, Michelle, was the oldest of three sisters. Born in 1982, seems as if she was a good kid who fell into the wrong crowd in a bad area. Relatives, former friends would say she came from a good home. She was loved by her parents. And then like a lot of teenagers, she rebelled. And her rebellious phase just took her further and further away from the straight and narrow. She gave birth to her first child as a teenager. Second, just a couple years later, by the end of her teen years, she'd gotten wrapped up in Albuquerque's criminal underworld pretty well and had become a a known prostitute and heavy drug user. Fucking meth. When her remains were identified, her mom had this to say of her daughter. She was a very fun, loving girl, always had a smile on her face, and she would just brighten up a room with her bubbly personality. Everybody has faults, and hers was drugs. She was still a human being. She was a good big sister. She always looked out for her sisters. And she was a mom who cared about her kids' accomplishments. Drug addiction certainly wasn't the lifestyle she wanted. She wanted to help, but she didn't have money or insurance, so it was very hard for her to get help. In February 2005, she'd been reported missing by her. Her father, Daniel Valdez, Valdez, why, why am I saying Valdez like the, like the, I think that's a city or something. Uh, it's believed that she was uh, killed around the same time as Victoria Chavez, sometime between 2004, and 2005. Her remains again so badly decomposed that an exact time of death simply just can't be given with any certainty. In a press conference held on February 25th, 2009, Albuquerque Police Chief Ray Schultz declared that the West Mesa crime scene was one of the largest crime scenes in Albuquerque history. It would later be declared as the largest crime scene in Albuquerque history. He also said at the press conference, we have linked two of the victims with similar lifestyles now. That gives detectives a good place to start. This is where the real work begins. At some point in time, their lives crossed paths, whether it was with each other or some other individual who was involved in their deaths. While he never said they suspected a serial killer, it did seem like he was implying it. Later that month at another press conference, he'd say, the remains are all old, 
They've been there a number of years. Had we been finding fresh bodies, I'd be much more concerned. Everybody can be reassured that there is not an active serial killer in Albuquerque actively killing and preying on people. An unknown but sizable number of people in the community, especially sex workers, did not respond well to that sentiment. Seemed dismissive. By this point, while only two women had been identified, the remains of eight additional women's bodies have been found. Digging continued. Police knew that at least 10 women had their bodies dumped where the community of West Mesa West Mesa met the open desert south of Albuquerque just off of 118th Street Southwest. They might have been downplaying the possibility of an active serial killer, but they did know a serial killer was responsible for the bodies they'd found. They just didn't know if this uh, person was active or not because they hadn't found any fresh bodies. One detective, though, Ida Lopez, she'd been worrying about a local serial killer for years. She compiled a list of female workers, uh, sex workers, and other local women who'd gone missing between 2001 and 2006. More on Detective Lopez in a bit. For now, uh, just know that her list helped identify two more murdered women whose remains had just been uncovered. One of these women went by the name Cinnamon Elks. She was next to be identified. She was the oldest victim at 32 at the time of her disappearance. Her story is similar to the previous women. She'd fallen into similar pitfalls. She was a perfect child, according to her mom, Diana Wilhelm. But then during her teenage years, she started to experiment with drugs and her life spiraled out of control. According to Diana, Cinnamon became addicted to alcohol and, uh, and drugs and soon had a rap sheet as long as her arm. She was arrested 19 times for prostitution and or solicitation. 14 convictions would be arrested 12 additional times for drug possession, resulting in giving a, uh, re- resulting in another, excuse me, five convictions. To support her drug habit, Cinnamon stole checks, forged Diana's name on them. When that income stream was taken away from her, she turned to prostitution to earn money she needed for drugs. Because of her drug dependency, Cinnamon missed out on raising her two kids. Meth strikes again. Right after her final arrest in July of 2004, she disappeared. In August of that summer, her mom reported her missing after she neglected to call Diane on her birthday, as she'd done every year, no matter what was going on. When Diane made the report, she was allegedly told by officers something along the lines of adults had the right to cut off contact with anyone. Now, this would be a theme according to many members of the victim's family dismissal. Only the mass grave would bring real attention to these cases. Before you get too upset with Albuquerque police, uh, you know, we'll find out soon that they were underfunded, legitimately didn't have time to track down missing 32-year-olds. They were busy trying to solve numerous unsolved murders and other cases where they knew for sure that a crime had occurred. An investigation into Cinnamon's disappearance was officially started in December 2004. By that time, there were few, if any, leads to follow. Her parents would submit her dental records to police, and more than four years later, those records would be used to identify her body when the dental records from her skull were compared to the dental records of missing women on Detective Lopez's list. Interestingly, when Cinnamon's remains were pulled from the site and identified, Diana told the police and the public that her daughter had known personally the first two identified victims. While this was important information and it would be thoroughly investigated, it was also overshadowed publicly by yet another victim being identified around the same time. I'm going to talk about that victim now. And uh, man, this stuff is kicking in hard. <laughs> I, uh, the, the screen has texture now. The, the, the walls have texture. So that's new. Uh, the fourth West Mesa bone collector victim to be identified was Julian Julie Nieto. Described as a very petite woman. Julie Nieto was uh, always small for her age. So small that when she was a little kid, her mom said that Julie often sewed or altered her own clothes to make them fit. She grew up in Albuquerque, South Valley and Los Lunas and loved chili peppers and loved to jump rope. She later went to the Job Corps, helping to teach underprivileged young people different professions. She was a real good kid. Her mom, Eleanor uh, Griego, said Nieto started doing drugs when she was around 19. 
She tried to get, you know, her treatment, but Julie didn't want it. Fucking meth again, probably. Uh, Griego says that she last saw Nieto, then 23 in August of 2004, at Griego's dad's house. Uh, Griego's dad's house. She left behind a young son who Griego said she had doted over. She said uh, she was a great mother. She wouldn't let that boy go for nothing. He cried and cried for her. Two years after Nieto went missing, her sister Valerie Nieto was found dead in a motel. Man, his poor family. On Central Avenue after overdosing. Again, the drug not named. Her mom said she couldn't handle it. She was depressed all the time, crying all the time. Julie was the only sister she had. When her mom found out that Nieto was one of the girls found on the Mesa, she said, I collapsed crying. I was upset. I just buried one daughter and now they find the other one. Whew. Uh, Nieto was charged with prostitution, convicted four times, according to court records. Now that four victims have been identified, investigators had started calling the plot of land where the bodies were found the pit. Patterns were being discovered. More patterns between the victims. Besides sex work, drugs, and tragic transient lives, right? the four uh, women first identified were also members of a local Magic the Gathering group that met up once a week down at the elect- Eclectic Cave on Central to play Magic the Gathering. This connection would lead detectives to place an undercover agent in local Magic the Gathering tournaments, and she was able to play well enough to crack an underground ring of illegal matches, partially because her department paid several thousand dollars for her to have a sweet stacked deck full of Zeron orbs, Legendary creatures like Rith the Awakener, powerful sorcery spells like Maelstrom Pulse. These underground Magic the Gathering matches were hosted by drug cartels, where winners would make six figures. Cheaters sometimes ended up having both their hands cut off, so they weren't able to play again. And at least a few cheaters who tried to take cartel magic money uh, by betting against themselves and intentionally losing were burned alive, and their magic decks were used to help start those fatal fires. Of course... Of course, that didn't happen. I, I knew that was a lie, but because of the shrooms going in, I'm like, oh, that's fucking crazy. Uh, <laughs> I wish car, I wish crazy drug cartel magic gathering tournaments were a real thing. Man, what a what an amazing visual that is. Hardcore, you know, like meth selling gangsters sitting around some fold out tables in a comic book shop basement, putting down huge bets on whatever magic nerd <laughs> they thought had the, the right combination of strategy, spells, counter spells, monsters, and mana. Come on, motherfucker. How the fuck do you not play Lightning Helix? It's an instant. It's an instant, you dumb shit. You just cost me 25 large because you don't know how to fucking play the most basic card in your hand. You don't, you don't, really? You don't play your, your psycho tag when you have 10 cards in your hand? Big Killer and J Rock were right. You're a fool, Ned Jenkins. <laughs> Sorry, I know that was so random, but I had to lighten things up for a second. Ah, oh, the light's moving on me. There was a real connection between the first four victims. It was not Magic the Gathering, it was the fact that they'd all known each other. Detectives determined that they ran in the same social circles and all four had also disappeared within the same six-month period uh, of time. Unfortunately, this connection did not lead to the murder. No one from the girls' conjoined social circle was ever looked at seriously as a suspect. Police still downplayed the serial killer elephant in the room at press conferences, presumably to quell public fear. Privately, again, they had to have known the serial killer was most likely the perpetrator of these murders. Now, they continue to Uh, Go through their case files of missing sex workers over the past decade and a half, hoping to identify more victims who are almost certainly murdered by the same person or at least by the same group of people. Uh, It'd be incredibly rare for different sets of killers, you know, two killers or more killers to leave bodies in the same dumping ground. There's, There's a lot of desert around Albuquerque. The odds of different murderers working independently in that same area at the same time, killing victims who all engage prostitution, victims who knew each other, and then dumping their bodies in the exact same spot? Get the fuck out of here. Highly unlikely. Outside of a serial killer, investigators did also toy with the possibility that the women may have uh, been dumped there by a local pimp, uh, maybe by a gang that might have been dumping bodies in West Mesa. 
Uh, by March of 2009, various members of the public were coming up with their own theories as to who killed these women as well. Diana Wilhelm, Cinnamon's mother, reported right after her daughter was discovered, uh, mis- uh, her body, her, right after her daughter's body was discovered, uh, that she'd heard some disturbing rumors. During the roughly five-year gap that Cinnamon was missing, Diana heard from her daughter's friends that just prior to her disappearance, Cinnamon had been telling people about a, quote, dirty cop that was killing sex workers in Albuquerque. At the time, Cinnamon had specifically told people that this unnamed dirty cop had been chopping women's heads off and burying them in West Mesa. Sometime later, Diana would claim to have received several phone calls about this that added to her fear. No dirty cop uh, ever made it onto a list of suspects, and, and the remains did have their the heads. So not likely this happened. Diana told reporters that people have been calling her, telling her that her daughter had been decapitated, buried in West Mesa. Is that what happened to Cinnamon? Uh, it was never reported that she was decapitated due to the condition of her remains. No cause of death was ever given because cutting one's head off you know, requires obviously cutting through the spine. I would think, even if the head was also there, that there would be evidence that would show up in a forensic examination. Uh, if it did, it was never mentioned to the press. Diana claims that these phone calls reported to police at the time and were never, to her knowledge, followed up on. And Diana was not the, uh, the only mom to hear these rumors. Karen Jackson, the mother of victim uh, Michelle Valdez, uh, or Valdez, uh, she heard similar stories. Uh, Karen knew that her daughter Michelle was close with Cinnamon Elks, and she heard rumors that the two had been stabbed and buried out in West Mesa. Karen report before the pit was discovered that Michelle's sister Camille, Camille had gotten a phone call from one of Michelle's friends offering condolences and saying that she'd heard uh, that Michelle had been, quote, stabbed a bunch of times and thrown out somewhere. Did a local cop kill these girls? I mean, I guess it's possible. The murders, the murders remain unsolved. So, you know, a lot of things are possible. Based on some of the suspects we have coming up, though, I, I don't think it's likely that a crooked cop killed these girls. I think it's likely that a regular old civilian dirtbag did it. One I will mention soon. Uh, let's actually look at a good cop now. The one detective who had been compiling that list of missing sex workers years before the pit was ever discovered, Detective Ida Lopez. Lopez had grown up in Albuquerque, was inspired at a young age to be a police officer by her grandpa. She became an officer for the same reason that most do to try and do some good in this world. After graduating with a bachelor's degree in criminal justice and Spanish from the University of New Mexico, Lopez attended the local police academy. Uh, I don't know when she graduated. Personal details are sparse for Detective Lopez. I do know she was the uh, undercover officer who infiltrated those uh, not real underground Magic the Gathering play to the death tournaments I mentioned earlier when I made that up. I know that for sure in my heart of hearts. The magic mushrooms, they told me that was true. They told me that was true somewhere. They also told me that the wall is bending behind me. Uh, after graduating from the academy, Lopez joined APD as an uninformed officer. And after several years of kicking ass for her city on the streets, she became a detective. She would consistently find herself in a part of the city that the Albuquerque Journal described as the war zone in 1991. In 2000, I wish you guys could see what I'm saying right now. This is fucking crazy. It does not pertain to the story at all. And I know it's not going to matter, but oh man, I'm not looking at the same wall right now that I was looking at 15 minutes ago. 2009, the New York Times would call the area a neighborhood of housing projects, heroin and sex shops near the University of New Mexico. Great heroin and meth. A lot of bad candy to be had in the roughest neighborhoods of Albuquerque. After a leave, after a leave of absence due to a battle with a few personal health problems, Lopez returned to work, focused on the area's missing people. One of those people was Michelle Valdez. Uh, the second West Mesa victim identified, right? The one who was four months pregnant. As Lopez dug into Valdez's chaotic and tragic life, she started to see similarities between several other Latina women who had gone missing from the war zone. She started her list and it would soon include 24, two dozen young women. Only 17 would have available dental records. 
Uh, before some of their bodies started turning up in the pit, she had a hard time getting the support of her fellow officers to try and track these uh, you know, women down, find out where they went. In 2007, two years before the bodies began to be found, a journalist named Maggie Shepard, she did want to help Lopez. She went along uh, with a ride along with Lopez. Two got to talking about her list. Maggie noted that law enforcement was not very interested in the time at following up on the cases. She said in an interview on NPR in 2010, they weren't trying to make it seem like anything other than what it was, a list of missing prostitutes. Uh, the disappearances did interest Shepard, and she wrote in, uh, you know, they interested uh, this, this reporter. She wrote an article about them in the now defunct Albuquerque Tribune titled The Missing in September of 2007. It included pictures of 16 of these women. The article did not pick up much steam, and Detective Lopez's list continued to matter to almost no one other than Ida Lopez and Maggie Shepard until 2009. By the time uh, spring of 2009 rolled around, investigators had found the remains of three additional victims at the pit, bringing the body count to 11 women and one unborn child. It would take nearly a year to identify them all, and if it wasn't for Lopez and her list, several of them may have never been identified. Here are all their names and their ages the time they disappeared— also, all but one of these victims, uh, Hispanic. Jamie Barella, 15. My God, man, 15. Monica Candelaria, 21. Victoria Chavez, 26. Virginia Ann Cloven, 23. Sylvania uh, Edwards, or, uh, or uh, no, I'm sorry, Solania. Solania Edwards, only 15 years old and the only African-American victim. Uh, Cinnamon Elks, 32. Uh, Doreen Marquez, or Marquez, excuse me. 27, Julie Nieto, 23, Veronica Romero, 27, Evelyn Salazar, 23, and Michelle Valdez, 22. Now for a little bit about the victims you haven't uh, uh, already met. Jamie Barella, 15, last seen with her 23-year-old cousin, Evelyn Salazar, uh, heading to a park at San Mateo in Gibson Southeast in April of 2004. That's fucking crazy. San Mateo in 2004. I worked at a now long-closed comedy club in Albuquerque. It was located on San Mateo in 2004 called Laughs, very original name I know, uh, right down the street from this park. Weird to me to think about that there's a small chance I could have seen, you know, one of these two women or both. I, I was at least in their town around the time they disappeared and not far from where they were last seen. Uh, neither woman ever seen again until their bones turned up in the mass grave site on West Mesa or, you know, at West Mesa in 2009, man. Jamie, the final skeleton to be identified almost a year after the first bone was found, Unlike the other West Mesa victims, Barella had no known prostitution or drug arrests. Her cousin Evelyn liked camping and outdoor activities, was a good cook, taught her daughter how to roller skate, according to her obituary. She'd been convicted of prostitution only once, according to court records. Another woman whose bones were found in the pit, 21-year-old Monica Candelaria. Sheriff's deputies investigating the disappearance of Monica in 2003 heard from her friends that she'd been killed and buried on the Mesa. Turns out those friends were right. When she never showed up, detective turned it over to uh, Bernalillo. Yeah, Bernalillo County Sheriff's Office, uh, their cold case unit. The case stayed cold until she was identified as one of the women found in the Mesa in 2009. She was last seen near, near um, Atrisco in Central in Southwest Albuquerque. Deputies said she lived a high-risk lifestyle, may have had gang ties, convicted of prostitution once, uh, according to court records. Her obituary highlights a happier side, saying, Monica enjoyed laughing, joking, taking care of babies, and spending time with her family. She will be remembered as a loving daughter, mother, granddaughter, niece, cousin, and friend who will be truly missed. Uh, next is a 23-year-old Virginia Cloven. She grew up in a small trailer heated by a wood-burning stove in Los Chavez. She was funny, loved doing her makeup, uh, was a favorite in school. 
Her dad, Robert Cloven, said in a 2015 interview, she was a really humorous girl. She would take everything in stride. She would try to lie to you. Then she would come in and tell you the truth. Always two minutes later, her teachers always wanted to adopt her. Another good kid, man. All this shit's so sad. And then tragedy struck her family. And she said suddenly, uh, um, and, and you know, she said goodbye to her high school, said hello to try to make it on her own. Her brother was shot, killed in a homicide. They would later be ruled self-defense. When this happens, uh, Virginia runs away from home. And then uh, she's only 17 years old. A brother of hers runs away as well. Uh, her dad said, they just said that they couldn't stand it anymore. For a little while, she lived with her grandpa in Albuquerque, but then she went to live with a, uh, she went to live with a boyfriend. And then more tragedy struck. Man, some people is fucking the blows are dealt. Uh, the boyfriend she goes to live with gets hit by a car. He goes into a coma. And then while he's in a coma, she, uh, she has no place to live. And uh, yeah, she, well, I guess she doesn't want to go back home. She ends up living on the streets of Albuquerque's international district. A year or so later, Virginia calls her dad to ask what he wants for his birthday. He asked her to, to clear up her, uh, her citations and then they're supposed to meet in Albuquerque. And he said, we went to go meet on her birthday after court. Uh, she said, come to grandpa's, but she wasn't there. After that, she just vanished. Man, what a fucking nightmare for any parent. Uh, Robert Cloven and his wife searched high and low for their daughter. They taped pictures of her on, on the cab of their, uh, of their truck, drove through the seedier parts of the city. They last heard from her in June, 2004. She called to say she had a new boyfriend who had just gotten out of prison. And then uh, she was probably going to marry him. Robert Cloven said in 2009, uh, we said we'd like to meet him, but then we never heard from her again. After that, everything just went dead. And then Robert Cloven reported his daughter missing four months later in October 2004, uh, only 23. He hadn't heard from her uh, you know, in years. And then Robert Cloven said he never expected detectives to show up at his door, tell him that his daughter was dead. He said, we just couldn't believe it. We were hoping it was a mistake. In the back of our minds, we still thought she might be out there. Now, years later, his daughter's death still haunts him. He says he doesn't uh, celebrate holidays anymore. He says he sleeps in the living room instead of the bedroom, whereas, uh, you know, kids, I guess, would have been. This poor bastard. He said, uh, when you lose a kid, it's the hardest thing in the world, I think. I've lost other family members, but when it's your daughter or son, it hurts worse. Fuck. Uh, Solanya Edwards stands apart from the other West Mesa victims. She had no known friends or family, was a runaway from a foster care uh, situation in Lawton, Oklahoma. One of the uh, youngest victims, not counting the unborn baby, of course, just 15 years old, just like uh, Jamie Barella. And as I said earlier, the only African-American victim. She never knew her father. Uh, last saw her mom when she was only five. Uh, police think she might have been a quote-unquote circuit girl, meaning she was traveling alone on the, along the I-40 corridor as a prostitute. Man, what a fucking tragic start to her life. Dad never around. Mom's gone at five, working as an uh, uh, interstate prostitute by the age of 15. And then a murder victim before she turned 16. Just so much sadness. Uh, feeling very lucky right now. Uh, early in the investigation, the tipster told investigators that Edwards was seen in Denver in the spring and summer of 2004. Uh, the tipster said she had been in a motel on East Colfax Street in Denver. The uh, then APD spokeswoman, Nadine Hamby, said in 2009, they were high prostitution areas. Uh, police believed that she may have been traveling in a group. Hamby said, we've received information that Solania was associated with three other females. They may have gone by the aliases Chocolate or Mimi, or that she may have gone by those aliases. Uh, early on, investigators hoped Edwards' background, uh, because it was different from the other victims, might provide details that could lead to a crack in the case. Uh, did not. Uh, police uh, released photographs of her fingernail, which had a distinct painting design on it to media outlets in both Albuquerque and Denver in hopes that someone who painted the nail might come forward. That just didn't happen. Or if it did happen, you know, the investigators never shared that with the press. 
Doreen Mar- Marquez, 27, another victim. She loved jewelry, fashionable clothes, had a huge personality, according to her friends and family. She always did her hair, always did her nails, always looked beautiful. Her friend, Frederica Garcia, would, would say later, the girl was gorgeous. She was not the one to say, I'm going uh, I'm to pull my hair back today. I don't care how I look. She went to West Mesa High School where she was a cheerleader, later had two daughters who she was totally devoted to, throwing extravagant birthday parties for them. But then as the girls got older, Marquez's boyfriend, uh, he became incarcerated. After that, she's now raising the girls alone, and then she turns to drugs. She starts spending less and less time with her daughters, starts leaving them with her sister, other family members. I had kicked her out of my house. That was the last time I saw her, uh, said Julie Bubbles Gonzalez, Marquez's sister. I just told her, you know, it's better if you just go. Whenever you feel like you're, you're not going to use or you just want you know, somewhere to come and eat, shower, whatever, my door is open. But then she never came back. Man, Julie did the right thing, but doing the right thing, how must still haunt her. Uh, Frederica Garcia said the last time she saw Marquez, uh, she told her you know, that she'd like to help her deal with her addiction, but then Marquez refused. It's not like she lived this lifestyle from 18 to 27, Garcia said. It wasn't like that. It was like the last year of her life she started having problems. Before that, she was such a really good mom. She was around 27 when she disappeared, friends say. Uh, police reported that she was last seen dropping a child off at uh, Calvary Christian Academy on Lead Southeast near University on October of 2003. Unlike many of the other women whose bones were found in the West Mesa, Marquez did not have any prostitution arrests. But police did believe that she engaged in it nonetheless. Now, many years later, her daughter still decorates her mom's grave with butterflies and wind chimes. Finally, the last known victim I have not introduced, uh, Veronica Romero, 27, reported missing by her family on Valentine's Day, 2004. Like many of the other victims, Veronica, once, you know, very promising life, and then it took a detour into drugs and prostitution, and, uh, you know, she had, to, she had to fall into prostitution to feed the drug habit. Uh, little L seems to publicly have been written about Veronica. Now let's talk about Albuquerque's mean streets. <laughs> I, I didn't want to crack... Uh, out of respect for the victims, but holy shit, my mind is bending hard. Uh, for each of the uh, victims I was talking about, the, the text showed up in a different color. It was blue for one. It was pink for another. I know it's none of those colors, but that's what my brain is processing everything as. And I was, um, I had waves going through me for one of um, the reads. Uh, and then for another read, I was vibrating. So just getting real weird. All from a mushroom. How weird is that? little fucking mushroom grows in the ground. Uh, once all these women were identified roughly a year after the first femur was found, police promised the families of the victims that solving the murders would be a top priority. In addition to numerous APD detectives working on the murders, FBI profilers were brought in along with other outside investigators who all tried to figure out how the bones of these 11 women had wound up in the pit. Officially, the cause of death for all the women was homicidal violence, but the truth was medical examiners and forensic experts had no fucking idea. How many of these, uh, you know, how, how these victims were killed? To this day, no witnesses have come forward. There was virtually no forensic evidence found at the site. All the, uh, uh, of the victims' remains have been reduced to nothing more than bones by the time they were found. You know, hence the moniker, the West Mesa Bone Collector. Uh, there were some suspects, though. Ugh, man, just like in the Alphabet Murders episode, there's some fucking dirty birds hanging around everywhere. Uh, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk about the suspects here real soon, but we have a little bit more context to cover first. And uh, before we get to that context, uh, I do have a real quick here, a, l- a little sponsor we have to get to. So it's a little tougher for me today to transition to a sponsor than normal, but I'm making this happen. There we go. 
Ah, Time Starts Today is brought to you again by Kroll's Cafe, a malt shop. Such sweet music for such a dark, dark bird. Hello, fellow dinos, sexy cow lover. This is Yahim Kroll. I want you to come to my new cafe. We just opened a new dino and brought for schnitzel. We still have the finest chocolate malts and the sexiest cow burgers and the best menu blue light specials this week. We have what I'm calling the hand soup surprise with the side of mystery sirloin. Don't ask where I got it. I, I don't have to scare you. And bring the kitties, always the kitties. Allow me to cover the happy plates with copious amounts of semen. We put our semen brand fry sauce on everything. Our semen brand fry sauce is quite delicious. Rich and creamy recipe, house made every morning by myself. Come on down to Kroll's Cafe. It's always mostly beef, I promise. That was so surreal right now. <laughs> and of course, that sponsor is not real. I mean, in my imagination it is, but you, uh, you can't go there. I wish you could. Uh, you can take advantage of a real and great sponsor deal, though. Multiple deals. Please do as we take a real sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out? Sleep? Read a book? Play Fortnite? Call your mom? Take judo lessons? Finally watch all the episodes of Shameless? A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. 
Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has 0 to 1 gram of net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the 2 grams of net carbs Hero Croissant or the 1 gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. 5 grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. All right, back to this investigation. The investigation into the murders revealed a dark side of Albuquerque, southwestern city of over half a million people, almost a million in the metro area, where at the time of the murders, the rate of violent crime was still more than double. Right, still was more than double the national average. Albuquerque still incredibly violent. Uh, as of 2019, Albuquerque's uh, crime rate, 3.7 times the national average. It was declared one of the seven most violent cities in the U.S. by Attorney General William Barr. Albuquerque is and was a city full of victims, a city where sex workers, members of one of society's most vulnerable populations, disappearing all too often. Uh, many in the Albuquerque community criticized the APD for the way they handled the case, especially initially, as it seemed like uh, they downplayed the situation as, you know, quote, just some missing hookers. But is that true? Albuquerque police, of course, denied this sentiment. You know, I mean, I mean, how could they not, even if it was true, especially if it was true? There's no way in hell they're going to state that at a press conference. Never going to be a police chief being like, do we take the disappearances seriously? No, of course not. No, now we take uh, disappearances seriously when real people who matter disappear. Uh, one thing that made, made me and the boy sad uh, about not finding those missing uh, sex workers was knowing that, uh, you know, we were, we were missing out on some free handies when we rounded them up. Uh, do any of the members of the media have any real questions? I got to get back to confiscating narcotics and handing them over to the cartel that bought me off a couple years ago. Yeah, I mean, if the police, <laughs> uh, you know, didn't care about it, they weren't going to actually admit that to anybody. Uh, the story law enforcement told the press is that they didn't dedicate hours to finding the missing sex workers because oftentimes people living on the street do lose touch with their families of their own free will. 
They don't often want to be contacted by relatives who are going to pressure them to say goodbye to their friends, you know, and uh, say goodbye to their addiction, their current lifestyle, turn their lives around. So there is that reality, and that is definitely not law enforcement's fault. And the police uh, said that they just didn't have enough officers available to look for these women because they were critically and chronically understaffed. One APD officer went on record saying one detective was working 92 cases at the same time. Uh, Another officer went on record and said that uh, one APD homicide detective was handling an unbelievable 28 homicide investigations by themselves. And if you don't pay to have enough officers handling areas, you know, amount of criminal activity, then a lot of crime that would otherwise be solved is just not going to be solved. Uh, Things are still bad in Albuquerque in this regard, and the screen is fucking bubbling right now. So that's been fun. Uh, Current Albuquerque police chief, Mike uh, Gear recently said that his department has been considering bringing in retired officers and outside contractors to help solve crimes. He said, we're trying to get some civilian contracts, former detectives that have had experience, help supplement investigations and continue investigations for those detectives that have a number of cases they're juggling each day. Uh, Bringing all this back to the West Mesa murders now, like the rest of the world, uh, sex workers, unfortunately, far more likely to be murdered than the member of almost any other socioeconomic group or demographic uh, their murders a lot harder for detectives to investigate than almost any other victim group. Those who literally work the streets a lot easier than most to be accessed by strangers, right? That's the nature of their job. They routinely get into the cars and homes of total strangers and because many of them are estranged from their families because many of them lead transitory lives. They're not noticed uh, you know, as quickly when they do go missing. To quote a recent UK study, it has been estimated that women involved in street prostitution are 60 to a hundred times more likely to be murdered than our non-prostitute females. In addition, homicides of prostitutes are notoriously difficult uh, to investigate, and as such, many cases remain unsolved. As shocking as the West Mesa serial killings are, they're sadly not very unique in the way of both prostitutes being killed on a regular basis by serial killers and in the way of those murders not being effectively investigated. While the number of serial killings in the U.S. has declined in recent decades, those that do still, uh, or those those that do occur, still disproportionately target women. And out of the women targeted, many of them prostitutes, according to FBI data released in 2011, seven out of 10 serial killer victims since 1985 have been women. And most of them have been in their 20s or 30s. And a 2006 study published in the Journal of Forensic Sciences found that serial killers accounted for up to 35% of all homicides. A 2004 study published in the American Journal of Epidemiology found that based on tracking U.S. homicides from 1981 to 1990, 124 sex workers were murdered each year on average, and that the homicide rate for prostitutes in the U.S. was 51 times higher than the homicide rate for the next most dangerous occupation working in a liquor store. Man, would have never have guessed liquor store employee was going to be the second most dangerous profession in the U.S., by the way. I feel like 2004 must have been an especially terrible year work at a liquor store. Now it's not in the uh, top 10 from what I can see. Now the top three most deadly jobs are loggers, commercial fishermen, and aircraft pilots, or so says CNBC. Uh, I, don't, I don't think prostitution considered a profession to them making this list. Uh, otherwise, it would have been, I'm, I'm guessing, the number one most deadly job. Uh, Stephen Egger, who teaches criminology at the University of Houston Clear Lake in Texas, who has consulted for the FBI, thinks that, the, uh, that prostitute murders take longer than average to solve because there is less public pressure to solve them. He said the majority of victims of serial killers are what I call the less dead as far as the public is concerned. They are less alive because they tend to be marginalized groups in society. 
In this case, drug addicts, drug addicts and prostitutes. There's an attitude that permeates the press and the public that uh, reduces pressure on the police to solve the crime, at least initially, until you've got a number of victims. <laughs> and my God, my brain is all over the place right now. It is getting so hard to stare at this screen. Yeah! Sadly, a perception that sex workers are seen by some as a problem that should go away may add to their unsolved murder numbers. Uh, society overall just doesn't seem to care about them as much as many other people. The 49 girls and women murdered by Gary Ridgway, right? The Green River Killer, to suck on him in Washington State in the 1980s, 1990s. Uh, that didn't receive anywhere near the sa same level of public attention and sympathy as the college students Ted Bundy murdered in the same state in the 1970s. I think this attention disparity, by the way, it, right now it feels like uh, trying to get through this, even just looking at the screen, it's like uh, working with weights on or have, it's like an obstacle course. Like I know in my, in my brain, part of my brain knows that it looks the same the whole episode. <laughs> but just for a second there, it was getting so bright, it felt like I was staring into the sun. I'm like, I don't know how much longer I can stare at the screen. And then it waned, and then it waned again. Ah, oh, I'm going to try not to talk about this stuff too much because I know it's so annoying for anybody just listening to Carby like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? Okay. All right. But yeah, I, th I think this attention disparity given to missing prostitutes has a lot to do with society's notion of fairness. This is a thought I had before, <laughs> before I took shrooms. So it's a real thought. Uh, looking at things overly simplistically, not taking into account, you know, how much uh, influence, poor parental guidance, higher rates of sexual and physical abuse, being at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, you know, had on one's future career and lifestyle choices. I think, and I'm speculating here, I think there's an attitude of, well, you know, you chose to get addicted to drugs. And if you chose to sell your body to strangers, and if you, you know, choose to surround yourself, you know, with violent felons, and you choose to live in a ratty, crime-filled kind of motel in an extremely low-income neighborhood, and then you get murdered, it's just kind of par for the course. It's the result of your terrible choices. Now, do I agree with that sentiment? No, no way. But I do think it exists and it is fairly widespread. To many, I think, and I stress this is uh, only what I think, uh, when sex workers go missing, it's not seen as tragic, but it's almost inevitable. Like, well, what did you think was going to happen? And, and I don't think this sentiment is isolated to sex workers. I think it carries over to impoverished people and to uh, minorities as well, based on anecdotal evidence of how the mainstream media covers major crimes, right? Like, take this example. One of Time Suck's most downloaded episodes ever, the mysterious death of John Benet Ramsey. Why? Why did that tragic death get so much press when, you know, kids are killed every year? And it's not like all the other child murders that, that occur in the U.S. and that have occurred since 1996 have been solved. Look at the Atlanta child murders. Until a recent podcast, until a recent HBO docuseries brought them to national you know, consciousness, to national attention, the murder of 29 victims between 1979 and 1981, all black, almost all from low-income areas, most of them kids, very little attention. And the man suspected of killing them all, Wayne Williams, although convicted of, uh, you know, two other murders or two murders, never charged with any of the uh, other murders, right? These murders didn't attract near the attention of John Bonet's murder that occurred 15 years later. And why is that? I think because she was pretty rich and white, right? Her parents were affluent. They weren't drug addicts or, or drug addicts, excuse me. They weren't prostitutes. They seemingly made all the quote unquote right choices. They represented to many the ideal American life, a wealthy white family living in a big, beautiful home. And then their uh, beauty queen daughter is killed and then, and then there is outrage. And there should be outrage, uh, but there's outrage also because it doesn't seem fair, right? People like that are not supposed to ever get murdered. What's the point of working so hard to attain this big, wonderful life for yourself if your kids can still get murdered? 
That's something that only happens to the, to the poor, to the forgotten, to people in America who maybe aren't white, to people uh, like, say, I don't know, poor Hispanic drug addicted prostitutes in Albuquerque. And this isn't some big social justice point I'm trying to make here. I'm just trying to look at this honestly. Right? And if you think I'm full of shit and believe in crimes like this expose America's, you know, racist and classist and moral biases, just reimagine the same crime scene with me. What if instead of the bodies of 11 minority women being found in a dirt lot outside of Albuquerque, 10 of whom were prostitutes, all of whom came from poverty, poverty, what if 11 bodies were found instead in 2009 in, uh, in the Santa Monica Mountains? And what if the, uh, you know, some of the dead young women were the daughters of white Hollywood execs living in the Pacific Palisades or Malibu or the Beverly Hills? What if, uh, you know, the other women were young starlets or maybe Instagram models or students at UCLA and Pepperdine? I guess Instagram, you know, didn't exist back then, so that, that doesn't work. But, you know, the rest of the place. How much media coverage would those crimes get? So fucking much, right? Yet if, uh, if it wasn't for this podcast receiving topic suggestions, I don't think I would have ever heard of the West Mesa Bone Collector. I think it's just, uh, I don't know, it's interesting. Also interesting right now is how many colors I'm dealing with. Okay, almost to the suspect list. Before we dig into it, let's first take a peek at Albuquerque's non-serial killer criminal underbelly. And what kind of environment was this serial killer operating? The state of New Mexico had the nation's second highest violent crime rate and its highest property crime rate in 2018. As you mentioned earlier, a big chunk of that coming from Albuquerque. Wasn't much better 15 years before that. In the heart of these crimes, right, the violent crime rate in New Mexico's largest city in 2003 was around 947 crimes per 100,000 in the population. The national average about half that at 475. The murder rate in 2003 was around 11 per 100,000, you know, twice the national rate. Behind these crime stats, criminal underworld dominated by gangs. According to APD, as many as 246 active gangs in Albuquerque and a total of 7,700 documented gang members. Of the nearly 250 gangs in the APD registry, local authorities say the vast majority are small, unorganized, will likely not exist within a few years, but there are some major players, were some major players as well. The Los Padillas gang, which run crimes uh, in the far south valley of Albuquerque, has been around since the 1960s. The organization is allegedly controlled by Jerry Padilla Sr., who just got back out of prison. Jerry and his sons, nephews, and cousins make up the group's uh, top leadership. Jerry supposedly maintains a good relationship with several local politicians. Good enough of a relationship to cover up some murders? I don't know, maybe, pure speculation, but maybe. Despite numerous undercover operations by city and county narcotics police, as well as the DEA, the Los Padillas gang has proved impossible to take down. And they control a significant amount of Albuquerque's drug and prostitution trade. There's also the West Side, East Side, South Side, North Side, 18th Street, Bloods, and Crips, several other sizable gangs. Members of these gangs tend to be much younger, more reckless, less organized than members of uh, older gangs like the Los Padillas gang, you know, more violent. There's also a a small number of so-called motorcycle gangs, which typically are run by more like illegal businesses, you know, complete with elaborate divisions of labor. Did members of any of these gangs kill the women found in West Mesa? You know, it's possible. Again, like a lot of stuff is possible. Uh, Other area sex workers have been killed in the past by local gang members, uh, or at least law enforcement believe they've been killed by local gang members or local gangs. You know, it's it's the orders of local gangs. One Albuquerque journalist wrote back in 2009 that members of one of Albuquerque's uh, ubiquitous gangs who, uh, use prostitutes as mules for smuggling drugs and then kill them so they can't testify against the smugglers. Ah, man, what a life. Uh, 2013, the National Gang Intelligence Center identified at least 30 Albuquerque area gangs that were involved in either prostitution or human trafficking or both. 
So now we have a little idea of what life could be like, you know, if you ended up in Albuquerque's criminal underbelly, rough and unforgiving. Now let's meet the suspects. By April 25th of 2009, the police ended their excavation of the pit. On the same day, the case was featured on America's Most Wanted, exposed, uh, you know, to its massive audience. Unfortunately, no credible leads, no information came from this exposure. Officials continue to downplay the serial killer element of the case. The APD, along with other federal officials, put together a $50,000 reward for information on the case. The reward would double by 2010, never lead to any arrests. The FBI took on more of a supervisory role in the summer of 2009, assembled a task force of around 40 officers to do interviews in not only New Mexico, but in neighboring states like Arizona and Texas. Uh, this investigation you know, led to the Northside Strangler being a suspect at one point. This is a Milwaukee-based serial killer. Uh, this Wisconsin serial killer, Walter E. Ellis, raped and strangled at least seven women in Milwaukee between 1986 and 2007, but he didn't kill any women in New Mexico. Uh, also, all of his known victims were African-American, not Hispanic. Walter E. Ellis is the only known serial killer to be taken somewhat seriously as a suspect in the West Mesa murders. Uh, one suspect who was taken seriously for a while, well, actually, that's, that's, not, that's not true. There was a, 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 more, a more minor, well, I, sh I shouldn't say minor, uh, less prolific serial killer also considered as a suspect. Uh, one suspect who was taken seriously for a while was a local dirtbag named Fred Reynolds. Fred Reynolds, an Albuquerque native who had spent time in California's Bay Area, died of natural causes the month before the bodies were found, January of 2009. He was a veteran of the local New Mexico sex trade. He worked in uh, Albuquerque as a pimp in the city for years. He owned and operated a, a company called Have Mercy Escorts in the last years of his life, had several run-ins with the APD for prostitution-related offenses, arrested in both 1998 and 2001. He knew several of the murdered women found in the pit, even had nude photos of one of them. It seems that this pic was a promotional photo he'd used to market the woman online with. Uh, the police said that they found other photos of missing sex workers in his house, never released their identities. The APD would also learn that just months before his death, October of 2008, Reynolds had made inquiries into these missing women, even trying to track them down through friends and family. One friend of a West Mesa victim uh, named Doreen Marquez said this in an interview. He told me he was a former heroin addict himself, and this was the reason he wanted to help the women that worked for him. He wanted them to have a good life. So is it possible that a former pimp was trying to make things right towards the end of his life? I mean, yeah, maybe. It seemed that way to a few of the victim's families. You know, he was quickly cleared as a suspect. Soon after he was cleared, another suspect was linked to the crimes via tire tracks discovered multiple times on satellite images that seemed to lead towards his mobile home less than two miles from the pit. The owner of the home was a huge piece of shit named Lorenzo Montoya. Man, this dude for sure could be the West Mesa bone collector. Uh, Montoya lived alone, was no stranger to the police in December of 2006. A local prostitute named Sharika Hill was in regular contact with Lorenzo online. She arranged to meet with him at his trailer on December 17th. She was driven to Montoya's mobile home by her boyfriend and also pimp Frederick Williams. He parked down the street, waited for her to do her thing. After an hour passed, Frederick uh, made his way to Montoya's to see what was going on. I mean, what the fuck, by the way? How weird to be your girlfriend's pimp. I mean, weird to be a pimp. Just weird to be a professional exploiter of women. Uh, not good. Extra weird, I think, the, the, the pimp, the woman you're dating. Like, how did she introduce him to people? Ah, this is Fred. No, Fred is, is heavily, heavily involved with my pussy. Uh, not only does he sometimes please it, he also literally sells it. I mean, I don't know if it's fucking so crazy. Uh, when Williams uh, returned to pick Sharika up at the end of the hour, 
Frederick said he found his girlfriend dead at the hands of Montoya. Apparently, after sex with Hill, Montoya strangled her, wrapped her in tape, blankets, and a cord, started to dispose of her remains. I mean, what the fuck? He, he did this with her pimp right down the street. Who was this maniac? Uh, Williams allegedly arrived just the moment that Montoya was carrying Hill's limp body to the trunk of his car. And when Williams confronted Montoya, Montoya started to make a move towards him, and Williams shot and killed him. And a longtime friend of the show and former pimp Chicken Joe strongly approves this shooting. Bok, bok, playboy, bok, bok. Chicken Joe know for sure the street pimping is a dangerous gig and got to go. But I just want to pop in and let you know that at least Fred didn't let it slide that his girl was dead and go that low. Don't make Fred some saint. I think we all know that he ain't. But at least he didn't run, didn't pull a Keith fan horn, go soft in the paint. Fred might have kept a lot more girls out of the pit when he pulled that trigger after that clip. Not many pimps can say that they save girls' lives. That about as rare as never getting cut when all you do is play with knives. Just want to give a dirtbag some credit when credit is due. He might not have been good, but maybe not bad through and through. Gonna promise to protect some girls. You better follow through and slay those who need slaying. You feel me? You dig? You hear what I'm saying? I do. I do, Chicken Joe. That was Chicken Joe's way of saying that he approved of Fred Williams killing Lorenzo Montoya. Uh, old inside joke for new listeners. And I feel like I'm in an insane asylum right now. How is this my job? Uh, did Fred kill the bone collector? I think he might have. Uh, the shooting would be ruled uh, would be ruled self-defense, and police immediately suspected this was not Montoya's first murder since he seemed uh, pretty methodical about the killing. Albuquerque Police Chief Ray Schultz would later tell the media, there is a good probability that this isn't the first time he's done a crime like this. This is too brutal of a crime to be his first one. As police delved deeper into Montoya's backstory, the more they suspected him of being a serial killer. Uh, had they known a bunch of bodies were buried in the desert at that time, I, I think they would have uh, felt like they had caught the West Mesa bone collector. Dirty Bird Montoya had been arrested several times for prostitution-related offenses, including soliciting an undercover detective back in 1998. This arrest took place in the war zone where most of the victims worked. Uh, the next year, he was again caught by police with a prostitute who uh, he appeared to be attempting to rape and strangle. He had only $2 in his pocket, so clearly did not intend to pay her afterwards. Had police not arrived, she probably would have died. Unfortunately for Sharika Hill, she refused to press charges. She didn't want to have to go through the legal process herself. Uh, and I get it as much as a dude who has obviously never walked those streets can. I mean, she had her own demons to fucking deal with. You know, she didn't want a trial where her name was going to be undoubtedly, you know, undoubtedly uh, dragged through the mud with a, a trial that wouldn't necessarily end in his conviction anyway. Uh, 2003, Montoya arrested again for soliciting a prostitute. This was his last contact with the police until his death. And then upon further investigation, police discovered Montoya was an even bigger piece of shit. Turns out he'd been involved in a number of nasty domestic violence incidents. And I just want to share this out before I lose my head. For a second there, I was like, oh man, I feel like I'm a lizard. I'm, I'm a lizard. So yeah, so right now I'm a lizard, you guys. So I just got to get that out and then I'm going to get back to my notes. Okay. Uh, turns out, yeah, he had been involved in a number of nasty domestic violence incidents. 1986, he was arrested for aggravated battery. Charges were dropped by the plaintiff. 1994, arrested for domestic violence, but got a deferred sentence despite pleading guilty. When questioned, an ex-girlfriend of his alleged that he had beat her many times and did, quote, gross things to her, which she would never fully explain, uh, even threatened to kill her and bury her in lime, which obviously, years later, piqued the attention of the investigators of the West Mesa, you know, uh, bone collector investigation. Then after his death, a bunch of homemade sex tapes are found amongst his possessions, sex tapes he'd made with local sex workers, doesn't appear as if any of the women on the tapes were the women whose bodies were found later in the pit, but a snippet of one of his sex videos was released to the public. It is creepy as fuck. Does not show a sex act. Doesn't show any people, actually. It just shows a, a wall of his trailer, but you can, you can hear him. 
The Albuquerque Journal released the video on their YouTube channel, and here's the caption underneath it. It says, uh, Lorenzo Montoya, a man named as a possible suspect in the West Mesa case, made several homemade sex tapes. In one, after a period of time, the tape goes dark. A few minutes later, it shows his bedroom and includes what sounds like tape being unrolled. Montoya allegedly killed a woman by strangling her with duct tape in 2006. It's only 37 seconds long. I find it very, very disturbing. Since it's so short, I'm just going to play the whole thing for you. Yeesh. I mean, it sounds it sounds like he's unrolling a uh, you know a roll of duct tape. And just a few minutes before this, you know, there were there was a woman in in the room. Like, where did she go? Why don't you hear her at all? And you hear what I think is like unfolding a tarp or something. Probably what he was going to put the put the body in. Very very disturbing. Ugh. Uh, he killed a sex worker before. He tried to dispose of her body before. He did this in 2006, and then he was killed, according to satellite photos, right? The last victim was buried in 2005. If Fred, uh, you know, um, hadn't killed this dude, would satellite photos have later revealed another body being buried in 2006, maybe more after that? Also lived within a few miles of where bodies were found. The day before Hill was killed, receipts show Montoya went to Macy's and Target, uh, purchased multiple blankets and a comforter. When officers found Hill's body, it was partially wrapped in one of these comforters. I mean, he, you know, obviously intended to kill her. As as of uh, at least as recent as 2016, according to Albuquerque local news, he is still a suspect. But not the only suspect. More dirtbags. About a year and a half after the first bone was found in West Mesa, multiple law enforcement agencies raided Ron Irwin's home in Joplin, Missouri. What they found, pretty disturbing. Thousands of creepy photos of uh, mainly Latina women in December 2010, the APD would release seven of those uh, photographs or seven, yeah, seven of these photographs that showed eight women. The pictures are all of uh, these women's faces, you know, taken close up. And in some of them, the women appear to be dead or at least unconscious. In others, the women are just staring awkwardly into the camera. None of them seem to be super happy about having their picture taken. Not, not a real good time vibe associated with these photos. So who was Ron Irwin? He owned a couple of local businesses, including a photography studio in Joplin. And he became a suspect in the West Mesa murders when investigators discovered he had made trips to the state fair in Albuquerque for many years in a row, including the years the women were killed. In the fairgrounds, not far from the pit. He'd actually visited Albuquerque multiple times in 2004 and 2005. Police were able to link some of his visits to disappearances uh, of some of the murdered women. He also suspiciously stopped visiting in September of 2006, around the time the murder stopped. For about a year, investigators kept Irwin at the top of their suspect list. But at the, uh, as it, then it turned out, he had been in Joplin, you know, 750 miles away during several of the suspected murder kidnapping dates. Uh, in 2011, a spokeswoman for the Albuquerque PD, Sergeant Tricia Hoffman, told the Joplin Globe why he was a suspect. That's all in sealed warrants. That's still part of our pending investigation. But at this point, we've been able to eliminate him as a viable suspect. So Irwin, not the West Mesa bone collector. Lorenzo Montoya still looking like the front runner. Right for that for those mass murders, I uh, may not uh, longer uh, you know hold the top spot though. You're not going to hold it for much longer. When I talk about this next waste of carbon, Joseph Blea, Joseph Blea came to the attention of the investigators when his ex-wife contacted them just days after the first bodies were found. She believed the mid 50 year old was the killer and had a ton to lay on the cops as far as evidence. That's that's not a good start when your ex-wife is confident that you are a serial killer. 
And this dude is a fucking dirty bird. Joseph was an Albuquerque native who had been using the pit uh, to dump garbage, you know, regularly for years because he's a he's a classy guy. Just wants to dump garbage out of nature. Uh, she also said that his ex-wife said that he passionately hated prostitutes despite frequently visiting them. So he's that guy, the guy who despises the women he pays to have sex with. Super awesome. Yeah, I'm so sad we're not drinking buddies. Uh, Blea's ex told police that he often speaks about his hatred of, uh, of prostitutes, calling them dirty whores and sluts, sometimes calling them specifically by name. And check out this crime scene link with this guy. West Mesa investigators found an ID tag for a very specific, not super common plant buried in the pit when they dug there in 2009. They found it eight feet underground, so couldn't just, you know, fallen there recently, buried along with one of the victims, considered an important piece of evidence. Police were able to track the tag to a local nursery, and guess who was a regular shopper, uh, regular shopper at that nursery back in 2004 and 2005? Joseph Blea. Dude owned a landscaping business, uh, was known to have bought the exact type of plant connected to the pit on a regular basis. So he became, a, you know, one of the main suspects. The more investigators looked into his past, the higher up on the suspect list his name would travel. Uh, Blay had been involved in roughly a hundred interactions with law enforcement dating back to the 1970s. He'd been arrested for burglary many times, including several arrests for breaking into women's homes and apartments to specifically steal their underwear. What a very fucking weird, embarrassing crime. Like, we've all had our low points, all done things we're not proud of, but getting arrested for stealing someone's panties. Like, do you have to make a new set of friends once word gets out about that? Do you have to accept there's just going to be a lot of whispering about you at every family function you go to for the rest of your life after that? Like, I'm, I'm not the most gossipy person, but I like gossip, you know, a lot of people do. And if, if I knew that about somebody, oh my God, I'm fucking telling everybody. That's the person's in my family. Are you kidding me? You know, hey baby, how are we looking on the burgers? Going to get some uh, more of the freezer? We good. Uncle Joseph, what? He wants a double cheeseburger? Hey, did I? Did he show up? Did, I didn't know he was here. You know about his arrest, right? Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the panties. Did I tell you you got arrested twice for stealing panties? I did, a couple times, okay. Hey, can you send Paul over here? I don't think he knows about the story. And uh, baby, can you go in the bedroom and just uh, do me a favor? Just count how many panties you have exactly in the drawer right now. I'll count them again after he leaves. Uh, this piece of shit sentenced to probation. He continues his pervy behavior. He'd be arrested for exposing himself to a variety of women just a few years later. <sighs> he go to prison for a couple years over these incidents. Dude, two years actually, two years actually in prison for flashing his dick in public after the panty arrests. I think at that point, you're no longer invited to the family get-togethers, right? I hope not. What's going on in your family if you still let that son of a bitch come over? Oh uh, man, if he's in my family, nah. Uncle Joseph is the door? Uh, fuck no, he can't come in. Tell, tell panty sniff McDick Whipper, keep his pants on, find a new family. And prostitution was one of Joseph Blaya's main things. Uh, frequented the company of women working in the war zone throughout his life, uh, his adult life. After serving time, he'd get arrested again for whipping his dick out in front of a, oh my God, a bunch of random women in the 21st century and physically abusive. It's the real peach of a meat sack, real gem of a man. Both of his ex-wives said he was uh, cruel and violent. In 1997, he was charged with battery. In 2008, he was charged with aggravated assault, inflicting great bodily harm on a household member with a deadly weapon. Uh, he has two ex-wives, both confirmed his prostitution habits, feelings about prostitutes in general to investigators. Man, these, uh, these poor ex-wives too. My God, so sad. How low is your self-esteem when you know your husband, your abusive husband has a prostitution habit? Ah, oh, fucking sad and creepy. And how creepy is this? Both of his exes said Blea would collect items from sex workers and other women he slept with or claimed to have slept with as little trophies, little trinkets. Most of the time, uh, panties. Sometimes also swipe some of their jewelry. <laughs> fucking such a cartoonish dirtbag. 
Uh, when officers searched his home, it was discovered that this uh, creepy motherfucker had an al- quote an alarming amount of panties and other women's jewelry stashed around his home. I, just, I find that a humorous quote. Oh my god, an alarming amount of panties. This guy's a super creep. I just picture going over to his house, sitting on the couch, having a beer, then noticing a you know like the, the cushion just doesn't feel right. It feels like a little lumpy. And then when he gets up to use the bathroom, you know, I check under the cushion. And there's like five pairs of panties under there. That's fucking weird. Put the cushion back. You know, Blaya comes back, you're talking, you just look past Blaya and there's a few more pairs of panties up on top of the fridge. You start thinking, who has this many pairs of panties laying around? You know, you got to set your beer down on a coffee table, almost spill it because you set it down on an earring and another pair of panties. You go use the bathroom, see a couple more pairs of panties behind the toilet, a couple necklaces, bracelet on the bathroom counter next to the sink. Go to wa- After washing your hands, you go to dry your hands. You know, you think you're using a towel at first and he's like, that's another fucking pair of panties. God damn you. Panty sniff, McDick Whipper, and you're crazy amounts of panties. Fuck. So clearly it looks like Blake could be the guy. The damning phone call from the ex, both exes saying horrible things about him, the, the plant tag that connects him to one of the bodies, the fact that he frequented the area where the bodies were found, the fact that he knew many of the ladies worked in the war zone, the fact that he collected, you know, the, the trinkets like a fucking serial killer, his vocal hatred of prostitutes, history of sex crime arrests, history of violence towards women. No one's going to be surprised. If, if uh, officers say at some point, this is the guy. Investigators interviewed some of the sex workers in the area about Blea. Many said they knew him and they only had negative things to say about him, of course. In one case, a sex worker said that uh, she had gone back to his house. He tried to tie her up. She wasn't into it. He persisted. She broke free, got away. Then she warned other sex workers to stay away from old panty sniff McDick Whipper. Ah, and what I'm gonna tell you now makes him look even worse. There's even more stuff. It's funny. I, I just worked on these notes a couple hours ago and I've for- forgotten everything. This is all like a surprise to me as I find it. I'm like, what? Uh, after his 2008 arrest for attacking a family member, uh, a DNA sample was taken. When the DNA results came back, Blaya was definitively linked to one, heinous, uh, to one heinous crime and was found to be a potential match for several others. The for sure heinous crime he was linked to happened 20 years prior in 1988. A 13-year-old girl had been raped at knife point in her own house. My God, by a man who escaped without being identified. She would be the first of many to later identify uh, Panty Sniff McDipwigger right? That, that was the, the perpetrator. So many, in fact, would come forward. This attacker would, would become known as the mid-school molester. Ah! Blay was charged with enough kidnappings and sexual assaults to get a 36-year prison sentence in 2015. He was so guilty, a jury convicted him in 15 minutes. And now the 61-year-old will almost certainly die in prison. And there's even more dirt on this guy. Blaya's DNA was found on a prostitute left dead on a curb in 1985. He was never charged in connection with her death. Uh, see, he, so, you know, but he has been definitively linked to at least one sex worker's death. And it's been reported that in recent years, Blaya has made comments to his cellmates about knowing a number of the West Mesa victims. One cellmate went a record saying that in one case, he said he hit one of the women they found uh, later in the pit after she tried to rob him after sex. So did he do it? Uh, so far, my money is actually still on Lorenzo Montoya, but just barely. And only because he died in 2006, not too long after the body stopped being uh, buried in the pit. Blay was still free and living in the area from 2006, 2008. Did he stop killing for a few years like serial killers sometimes do? Or did he, uh, you know, start burying women in a different location? All that's possible. There are numerous other missing sex workers who disappeared during those years. Uh, Okay, time for three more possible suspects. Let's see if I can make it. Oh man, my brain's been so hard. Uh, Just quick looks at these dirtbags. Scott Lee Kimball. Robert, Howard Bruce, and Terry Allen Longmire. 
One of these dudes looks real, real bad as well. Uh, Scott Lee Kimball murdered, I mean, they're all pieces of shit, but it looks real bad as far as connection to the West Mesa case. Uh, Scott Lee Kimball murdered at least four people between January 2003, August 2004 in Colorado and Utah. While he's being tried for those crimes, crimes he pled guilty to, it was revealed that he'd been operating as an FBI informant at the time. Whoops. Uh, this became you know, a bit of a scandal. The fact that the FBI had technically employed a serial killer. Uh, he'd been hired to help bust a uh, huge meth ring. There we go. Meth again. He reportedly admitted to a family member that he was a suspect in the West Mesa murders in 2010, that he had been in the area at that time, that he was involved in a number of illegal things in New Mexico around the time of the murders. At one point, he even admitted to dozens of other murders, but then later denied it. Three of the victims he killed were young women. None of them were prostitutes, though. A search of Kimball's computer after his arrest turned up hundreds of photos depicting violent rape uh, pornography. The images were of women who were tied up, were in the process of being bound, gagged, assaulted with a variety of weapons. Uh, although most of the images were, had been downloaded from the internet, some were not, including images of Leanne Emery, a 24-year-old woman who was one of the victims, one of his victims. Thought that he kidnapped her when she was on a spelunking vacation. Spelunking, that is not a word you come across very often. She liked to explore caves, often doing it on her own. Uh, and the last time anyone saw her alive other than Kimball was when she checked out of a hotel in Colorado. Kimball, clearly a piece of shit. Don't think he is the West Mesa bone collector, though. Another known sex offender linked to the bone collector case, at least for a little while, was Robert Howard Bruce, a.k.a. the Ether Man. Ugh, that's a creepy nickname. Something you probably won't, you know, don't want to add to your dating profile. Don't want to introduce yourself to, to other people with that. Hey, name's Bob, but most people call me the Ether Man. This is my brother, Rapey McGee. Uh, Bob confessed to dozens of sexual assaults that span numerous states, including New Mexico, between 1985 and 2007. This piece of shit would break into women's homes, use chloroform to disable them, handcuff them before raping them. He'd be sentenced to 200 years in prison. Good, good. He's believed to have been uh, in Albuquerque around the time of the murders, but like the rest of these dirtbags, not charged. Terry Allen Longmire was the only, uh, is the only other, you know, highly suspicious suspect I, I came across who incredibly never charged with anything, despite seeming to have obviously done a lot of horrible shit. Terry lived alone about a half mile from the pit when the bodies were buried, known to frequent the uh, you know, war zone sex offenders back in 2004 and 2005. Uh, they'd even given him a, a terrible nickname. Some women interviewed by police in 2009 said that some of the girls called him the Grim Reaper because uh, a lot of girls who went for rides with him did disappear. And Terry had been a high school gym teacher at one point, fired in 1999 when he was caught drilling a hole into a girl's locker room. Charges never filed. Uh, because he claimed uh, that the principal asked him to do it. He said it was a, uh, some confusion, something about locating mice in the walls. Yeah, right. And check this out. Eight out of uh, the 11 women found in the pit were one-time students of Terry's. And it gets even worse. In 2001, Terry was working at a strip club and was fired for kidnapping several dancers, putting them in a cage for several hours in his fucking basement. One of the women was able to pick the lock. Uh, they escaped. Uh, when Terry went to, quote, grab some tools he wanted to try out, so creepy, the police came to his house. Charges were never filed because he said the whole thing was one big practical joke. He said he talked his way out of it. He said he's about to let them out and they were going to, you know, walk into a big surprise party when they escaped. And I guess he came back from the store with a birthday cake and candles and even balloons. So they believed him. He was fired, but the police did not uh, charge him with anything. Unreal. And it gets even worse, so much worse, actually. In 2004, Terry was fired from working at the Kinko's Copy Center. When he came into work, literally covered in what appeared to be human blood. When investigators met him at his house later that day, he actually let them in the home. They quickly found human bones in his basement, 
three different women's heads in their in his bedroom, a decomposing torso in another bedroom, yet again, not charged with anything. How? Terry told police he was trying to get hired uh, as a teacher, uh, hired back. He said that everything they found was part of a science project he was working on. It's fucking unreal. Fuck. <laughs> this is nonsense. <laughs> this is nonsense. Oh, I, I wrote more. I'll share it with you because I wrote my, when my, when my brain was not riddled with hallucinogens. I, I was going to see how much further I could take this lie. And I, <laughs> I wrote that in 2008, this is stupid, but I'm going to share it. I wrote that in 2008, Terry's neighbors called the police after they witnessed him drag a screaming woman out of his car uh, into the house. They heard him, uh, you know, some gunshots. When the police come over, Terry shows him a gun. They see what appears to be a dead body laying on the floor. Uh, Terry tells him that he and the woman are local actors practicing for a role in a local murder mystery dinner like theater show. And, and again, he's not charged. He tells them that the obvious murder victim is a meth actor and just won't respond to their questions because he's, you know, she's trying to stay in character. And then I, <laughs> and then I took this lie even further. And then I said, it still gets worse. Satellite photos were discovered that showed him taking bodies to the site in his car, uh, putting them uh, into the ground at the pit in 2004, 2005. He's never charged. Uh, police confront him about the images. He tells him, no, I didn't. And they were like, no, nah, come on, dude. We have pictures. This is you. And he was like, nah, no, it's not. And like, Terry, yeah, it is. And he was like, no. And, and then this went back and forth for hours. And the officers finally reached the end of their shifts and they had to go home for the night. And the next day they just forgot. You know, and he, and he got hired again as another gym teacher. <laughs> Maybe I would have been able to, I don't know, keep that lie going when my brain was working right. Anyway, uh, I, I was just hoping that people would be outraged. Like, what the fuck? How? How is he not fucking arrested for any of this? So those were all the suspects. All, all of them were real people except for Terry Allen Longmire. So many dirtbags. Uh, seems to me there's about a 90% chance that Lorenzo Montoya or Joseph Blea, a.k.a. Panty Sniff McDick Whipper, probably did do it. One of those guys is dead. The other will likely die of old age in prison. Uh, I hope it is one of those guys. That means the West Mesa Bone Collector uh, is no longer murdering. Uh, the case, of course, though, is still an open investigation. On September 21st, 2017, design plans for a memorial park in honor of the West Mesa murder victims was unveiled. The Albuquerque Parks and Recreation Department City Councilor Clarissa Pena uh, released details after years of working on securing land and funding. And it actually was just finally completed a few weeks ago, June 27th, 2020. I, I wish I wish more was done, but I'm glad they did something. It's uh, it's, it's not a big park. It's not a big park, not a big memorial. There's not even a plaque. And there was a little bit of outrage that there wasn't even a plaque given. And I, and I got to say, I understand it. It's just some grass, a concrete semicircle, a few benches. Ah, it's about the size of like a, a, a backyard. But at least they got, you know, uh, you know, they did something. And they got the location right. The memorial does stand just, uh, you know, feet from the original excavation site. Better than nothing, I guess. I just expected more when I initially heard the word memorial. Uh, July of 2018, some more bones found in West Mesa. Just a quarter to a half mile south of the pit. People originally thought like, oh my God, did they discover another mass gravesite for the, for the bone collector? A lot of people very worried. Uh, no, turns out ancient American Indian bones, likely from the years 1100, uh, 1100 CE to 1300 CE, according to the Office of the Medical Investigator. So not, not the bones of more mur murder victims, thank God. Uh, but there are still at least 13 women on Detective Lopez's list that have yet to be found. 11 women, man. Scary case, Right. One was pregnant, murdered, dumped in the desert just outside of Albuquerque. And as much as I hate to say it, no one will likely ever be charged with uh, their murders. You know, the case is about as cold as they come. No hard evidence, just bones. Bones that don't have any perpetrator DNA on them if they ever had any to begin with. No murder weapon, no method of murder, no exact date of the murders. 
Thankfully, it appears that at least something good has come out of these unsolved cases, a better relationship between local sex workers and law enforcement in Albuquerque. While there are still players on opposite sides of the legal spectrum, New Mexico police are now more willing to investigate rape and assault allegations in the prostitution world. This softer approach of trying to protect sex workers instead of prosecute them has begun to open up a a better dialogue between sex workers and law enforcement, which allows law enforcement to watch over them and protect them more effectively. The goal is to prevent uh, another West Mesa bone collector case from ever happening. I wonder how much better the relationship would be still if uh, if, uh, vice was legalized. And I, and, I, and I put that in my notes before I was, uh, you know, my brain was where it is now. But then they wouldn't have to be on opposite sides of the legal system. I mean, I wish prostitution was legal everywhere and not because I have any interest in paying for sex. I just think it's the safest, most logical choice. Because you know, you know where a lot of prostitutes are almost never murdered? Nevada. The only state in America where prostitution is still legal. Sex workers working in uh, legal brothels are protected by armed guards. They have schedules, you know, where people know when they're supposed to be there, when they're not. People checking up on them. Isn't that better than just being out, you know, on the cold streets, not being driven to some maniac's trailer by their pimp boyfriend? Nevada brothel rooms have panic buttons for girls to alert security if a client gets rough. Uh, Also, safe sex encouraged in legal brothels in in a much more effective way than it is out on the street. Legal sex workers can't keep working if they test positive for HIV AIDS. The Nevada Health and Human Services monitors uh, legal Nevada brothels. And if a sex worker tests positive, then they're done. They don't get to work there anymore. Uh, you know, I can't know for sure, but it, I, I just feel like a lot less marginalized women would die like the women who ended up in the West Mesa, you know, bone collector's pit if prostitution was legal. The only arguments I hear against legalizing prostitution are subjective morality arguments, not practical ones. Prostitution is called the, the world's oldest profession for a reason. It's always been around, not going anywhere. You know, there's always going to be people who want sex, but can't get it, uh, you know, or can't get the kind they want unless they pay for it. And there's always going to be people willing to sell their bodies or people who want to. I just think if you can't stop it, you know, why can't you at least make it safer? You know, let officers focus on uh, unsolved cases. Let them stop spinning their wheels, you know, uh, on busting prostitutes and johns. That's just, it's just what I think. Uh, to be clear, I did write all these thoughts though again though before I was, before I was high. This is not the shrooms talking. Uh, so what happened to Detective Ida Lopez? Well, she retired in 2014, moved out of New Mexico for a while, but then she came back just recently to focus on finally solving the bone collector case. I hope she does. Hope she gets some uh, some resolution with this. Odds aren't good, but I, I admire her for not giving up. Law enforcement, including the FBI, continues to investigate the case. The $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons responsible still stands. Tips are still regularly sent in, report uh, reportedly in the thousands per year. Okay, now let's look into a few more uh, you know murder cases before we wrap up. This unsolved set of serial killers, you know, or serial murder, excuse me, got us wondering here in the Suck Dungeon how many other unsolved serial killer cases besides the Bone Collector are out there today. Obviously, law enforcement can't know exactly how many bodies haven't been found, how many people uh, who've gone missing, you know, have been murdered. Uh, educated guess, according to the FBI, between 25 and 50, though. 50 just in the U.S. Thought the number would be a lot lower for some reason. Around 50 active serial killers, murderers who've killed three or more people, usually killing for some sort of abnormal sexual satisfaction. Uh, according to one source, as high as uh, 40% of the time, these serial killers get away with their murders still, which is also surprising to me. Uh, Michael Arntfield, a retired police detective, author of 12 books on serial murder, thinks the number of active serial killers right now much, much higher, more like 3,000 to 4,000, only in the U.S. Hoping he is way off. Uh, so there are between 25 and 4,000 active uncaught serial killers in the U.S. right now, 
all of which have killed at least three people. So that's, that's not disturbing at all. Makes me wonder, right? How, uh, how many maybe stopped to gas up nearby the house here uh, before hitting I-90 again? How many in addition to Joseph Duncan anyway? Could one live here in town? Maybe, right? Just because they live here doesn't mean they have to kill here. Or is someone killing here right now and I just don't know because authorities don't know because the victims, you know, are just still listed as missing. Eek! Sleep tight with those thoughts, meat sacks. Now let's look at a few examples of more unsolved murders, at least murders that were uh, unsolved for a long time, possibly attributed to serial killers in the U.S. All these examples involve sex workers as well. And these are uh, all cases I had never heard of prior to about a week ago. The first example closely resembles the West Mesa bone collector murders, the Long Island serial killer murders. Just talked about that on the secret suck. Uh, the unidentified serial killer, also known as... Uh, the Gilgo Beach Killer, or also as the Craigslist Ripper, thought to have murdered 10 to 16 people in New York between 1996 and 2013. Not all of the remains have been identified, but the remains that have been identified, all women and all sex workers. Their bodies dumped along the Ocean Parkway near Long Island, New York, near the towns of uh, Gilgo and Oak Beach. In December of 2010, first four bodies were found. When they were uh, identified, all were missing prostitutes who had advertised their services on Craigslist. Each woman had been strangled. Each had her body wrapped in a burlap sack and dumped in a wooded area. One of the first victims identified Maureen Brainerd Barnes, 25 years old from Norwich, Connecticut. Maureen, small woman, only uh, four foot, 11 inches tall, 105 pounds. Last seen on July 9th, 2007, telling a friend that she planned to spend a day in New York City. She was a struggling single mom who worked as a paid escort via Craigslist to pay the mortgage of her house. Just prior to, to, uh, just prior to her disappearance, she'd gotten out of the sex industry for seven months, then returned to the work in order to pay her bills after receiving an eviction notice. So sad stuff. An investigation involving uh, the New York State Police ensued, including a $25,000 reward for information uh, you know, leading to her case, to solving her case. There was a lot of media speculation as to who the killer might be. According to FBI profiling, the killer, most likely a white male in his mid-20s to mid-40s, familiar with the South Shore of Long Island, a man who had easy access to the burlap sacks that he stored the bodies in, a guy who probably had a relatively strong knowledge of law enforcement, which would have allowed him to evade capture after all these years. In 2011, a New York Times article described the killer thusly, he is most likely a white male in his mid-20s to mid-40s, married, has a girlfriend, or has a girlfriend, uh, well-educated, well-spoken, he is financially secure, has a job, and owns an expensive car or truck. He may have sought treatment at a hospital for poison ivy infection. As part of his job or interest, he has access to or a stockpile of burlap sacks, and he lives or used to live on or near Ocean Parkway on the south shore of Long Island, where the police have found as many as 10 sets of human remains. While no more bodies have turned up in recent years, the Long Island serial killer believed to still be out there. A lot of suspects with this case, just like with the West Mesa bone collector. September uh, 2017, Suffolk County prosecutors named local carpenter John Bitrolf as a key suspect. This piece of shit already been charged and imprisoned for the murders of two women who were sex workers in 2014. He remains a major suspect in the death of a third. The remains of two of the... Uh, the remains of two of the official Long Island killer victims were discovered very close to built... Bit Rolf's home. One of the women he was convicted of killing also reportedly shared a connection with Melissa Bartholomew, one of the first discovered uh, Long Island killer victims. Another possible suspect, James Bissett, local business owner who ran a nursery in the area and uh, a main supplier of burlap. What a weird thing to be a main supplier of. I guess, I guess somebody has to do it. A main supplier of burlap in the region. 
Certainly seemed like a major suspect given the killer would have needed to have ready and plentiful access to the material. Uh, two days after Shannon Gilbert's remains were found in December of 2011, Bissett died by suicide, so obviously suspicious timing. So maybe the killer's dead. Maybe if he's John Bitrolf, he was arrested for other crimes already and is sitting in a prison cell somewhere right now. Or maybe he's living free and listening to this fucking podcast. Maybe when uh, bodies began to be found at the Gilgo Beach area dump site, he started to leave uh, you know, future bodies elsewhere, like the Mesa Bone Collector Murders. It's another dark mystery. Uh, a movie released by Netflix, March this year, Lost Girls, revolves around this case, around the Long Island serial killer murders. The movie, based on a book, focuses primarily on yet another suspect, Dr. Peter Hackett. Two days after Gilbert's disappearance, Dr. Peter Hackett, an Oak Beach resident and neighbor of Brewer, called the woman's mother, Mari Gilbert. She later recounted, recounted that he said he was taking care of Gilbert and that he, quote, ran a home for wayward girls, which he did not. Three days later, he calls the mom again, saying that he uh, never had any contact with her daughter. Investigators later confirmed through phone records that Hackett called Mari twice following the disappearance. Creepy. So creepy. Uh, next up, another creep, another dirtbag who was thankfully recently charged with murders of four sex workers in Florida after their cases had remained unsolved for over a decade. Very rare for a case that had gone cold for that long to finally be solved. Let's talk about the D Daytona Beach killer. Between two, uh, December 2005 and December 2007, four women's bodies turned up in Daytona Beach, Florida. All four were killed by gunfire. All four believed to be working as sex workers in the area. Police believed that the victims voluntarily accompanied the killer in a vehicle before they were murdered. Their bodies were dumped without any effort to conceal them. The Daytona uh, police used DNA testing to try and locate the killer after determining th that the deaths of these women were linked. And for years, no matches came up. Tips trickled in, led to a whole lot of nothing. Person after person claimed to have spotted the killer or said that they you know, knew the killer. Whenever police would look into these claims, they would run into dead ends. And then on September 15th, 2019, so very recent, Palm Beach County officials arrested 37-year-old Robert Hayes in his West Palm Beach home for the March 7th, 2016 killing of uh, then 32-year-old Rachel Bay. Bay struggled with drug addiction, was known to work as a prostitute in West Palm Beach about a mile from Hayes' home. Hayes is accused of strangling Bay, dumping her body off the Beeline Highway west of Jupiter, Florida. Construction crews found her body March 7th, 2016, and then DNA found on Bay matched DNA recovered from Gunther and Green, two of the Daytona Beach killer's victims, and it was Robert Hayes' DNA. After his arrest, ballistics tests con uh, connected Hayes to the killing of another Daytona Beach murder victim. Hayes' trial for four murders has just begun. So some details of how he was caught, you know, not ma been made available, and he hasn't been found guilty yet. I think he will be. Just like with the arrest of the Golden State Killer, genetic sleuthing was what took Hayes down. Florida Department of Law Enforcement Authorities credited genetic genealogy for helping to solve the case. Uh, an arrest report indicates authorities took DNA from a cigarette butt thrown onto the ground on, fr on Friday or on a Friday by Hayes. And then the following day, they matched Hayes' DNA exactly uh, found on, you know, to the DNA found on three of the victims. If only someone had found, you know, the bodies in the West Mesa pit earlier, long before they decomposed just bones, maybe DNA sleuthing could be used uh, to help crack that case. All right, just one more example now. Going to stay in the South, talk a bit about the Jeff Davis 8 killings. Uh, just a little preview here. This could be a future episode for sure. Between 2005 2009, the bodies of eight women between the ages of 17 and 30 were found dumped in crawfish ponds and canals in the swamps of Jefferson Davis Parish near Jennings, Louisiana. Jennings uh, is a little roughly 10,000-person town about 40 miles west of Lafayette. Victims had several things in common. Several of them knew each other. 
One pair uh, of victims were actually cousins. All the victims acted as police informants, all of them, several of whom actually reported on other Jeff Davis victims before their own murders. So that's a very odd detail. And the victims also shared histories of drug abuse, sticking with today's theme, also prostitution. First victim, Loretta Lewis, 28 years old, found floating in a river by fishermen on May 20th, 2005. And then a second body was found several weeks later by a, quote, group of froggers. That's right, froggers. Never heard that term before, froggers, people who hunt frogs. (laughs) Lindsay probably loves these people, she hates frogs. Uh, Did a little Googling that led me uh, quickly to a Louisiana sportsman.com article called Of Frogs and Men. And the start of the article really cracked my ass up. Uh, (laughs) Let me read it for you. This is how it starts. Oh, my God. Uh, Kyle, that's a big one, said 59-year-old Danny Eagle Edgar. That's a man, agreed 56-year-old Clay Switzer. Boy, he is really big. His (laughs) Harry Hop Dugas, who at 47 is the baby of the group. He's got eyes like an alligator, murmured Edgar in wonderment. Tense excitement bled through the three men's Cajun accents. Bullfrogs make frog legs. One thing that all Louisianans agree on, from Shreveport to Venice, is that frog legs are fine eating. Eagle steered the airboat to approach the animal, and Clay held an auxiliary light on the unsuspecting creature. Hop leaned far out over the bow of the boat and rapidly thrust his hand down into the frog and snatched it from the resting spot in the mud and the lilies. Hop quickly popped it through the spring-loaded door of his frog box. Joined more than three dozen of his fellows already in the box. For round three, Eagle took over the controls of the airboat and hopped to the kitchen. <laughs> the lights from the airboat burned holes into the blackness of the night. And the hunt continued, battling in the same brush. Hop caught as many as Clay did, only Hop's grab was more of a finesse move compared to the smashing power grab of Clay. The frogs the men were catching were mostly very large. Some were turbos. <laughs> Eagle guessed they had 45 frogs in the box. Figuring they had enough for a couple meals for each man, they they called it a night. Back at the boat landing, they counted their catch as they divided it up. The final tally was 46. That's the most Louisiana shit I've ever read in my life. (laughs) Three froggers. One known as Eagle. Another known as Hop. Get get the fuck out of here. It's real. Hop, Eagle, go. Go and get in the boat. I feel feel a mighty gang of riblets waiting to jump into our traps. Oh, giblet, toad, get the paprika. And the breadcrumbs and the, the garlic powder and the cayenne pepper and the fryer going. We're gonna we're gonna feast on a whole mess of hop tonight, boys. Love thinking about these froggers. Middle-aged men like just like big kids, yeah. You know? Catching frogs. Probably so much fun. You know, at least when you're not stumbling upon murder victims. Uh, the investigation into the murders of the Jeff Davis eight has yet to identify a legitimate suspect. Uh, there have been numerous suspects questioned about the murders over the years, some even briefly held by police. Some think multiple killers are responsible for the murders, not uh, a serial killer. The main suspect seems to be Frankie Richard, local strip club owner, suspected drug dealer, admitted crack addict. Got some crack! Uh, Dude who also admitted to having sex at one point or another with most of the victims. He knew all the victims. Uh, He was also among those last seen with one of the victims, Kristen G. Lopez. In October 2019, interest in the case was renewed as a result of Showtime's new documentary on the case called Murder in the Bayou. The doc is based on the book of the same name, written by investigative journalist Ethan Brown, and it seems like one hell of a read. I think Lindsay would love this read. Brown thinks members of the uh, local police may be behind the killings. He paints a picture of an immense amount of corruption in in the little Louisiana town of Jennings. 
According to Brown's book, as he looked further and further into the murders, evidence started pointing towards not a serial killer evading capture, but a steady escalation of blatant misconduct by local law enforcement. There were allegations that officers had sex with the women who later became Jeff Davis aid victims. And the task force was, Brown writes, a near case study in a conflict of interest. Evidence in the Jeff Davis eight case uh, cases had been tampered with or mysteriously lost, including the truck where one of the victims had her throat slashed. A prison nurse and a sergeant who had tried to voice some of their concerns were subsequently fired. And Brown connected a politician to all the killings, Louisiana Congressman Charles Bustani. Throughout the years he'd been investigating the case, Brown had been told that the uh, that the uh, Baudreau Inn, the former motel where the Jeff Davis eight regularly went to take drugs and have sex, was operated by people who were in politics. After a massive public records request about the inn, Brown found that it was co-owned by Martin P. Gilroy, a field representative for Bustani. Further digging revealed multiple witnesses who alleged that Bustani was not only present at the Baudreau Baudreau Inn on multiple occasions, but was also a client of at least three of the victims. And there's a lot more to this story. It lays out like a real-life true detective season. Might have to dig into more of it down the road uh, for a full suck when I have my, my mind with me on the Jeff Davis 8. All right, so that's today's show. A lot of unsolved murders out there. The West Mesa Bone Collecting, uh, the West Mesa Bone Collector Killings, one in a series of many. Hope someday all these cases can be solved for sure and closure can be given to the victims' families. What a, what a terrible thing just to not know. And what, a, and what a terrible way for all these uh, sex workers to leave the world. Luckily, the overwhelming majority of people, the overwhelming majority of women, also the overwhelming majority of sex workers do not end up in mass graves. A lot of darkness out there in the world, but thankfully a lot more light. I'm seeing a lot of fucking lights right now. My God. Uh, Let's take a few peeks back at today's darkness, though, and also learn something new in today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, while 11 bodies and also one unborn child's remains were unearthed from the pit, perhaps more than a dozen other missing Albuquerque sex workers could have also been murdered and have yet to be found. Number two, while no suspects have ever been charged in the West Mesa bone collector killings, it's got to be either Lorenzo Montoya or Joseph Blair, right? My God, what a pair of complete pieces of shit. Number three, female sex workers are the most likely people to be targeted for violence or death by psychos and serial killers. Will we ever legalize prostitution and help end these unnecessary murders? Number four, there are a ton of undiscovered serial killers running around out there, somewhere in the uh, huge spectrum of 25 to 4,000 in the U.S. alone. And one of them has to be Terry Allen Longmire, right? Fake-ass gym teacher sicko. <laughs> Number five, something new. There's an online archive of pieces of shit known as the Bad Guy List that documents assaults and attacks against sex workers in the Albuquerque area. If you Google Bad Guy List Albuquerque, you'll sadly find that these sort of attacks are not rare, still occurring, Big thanks to the folks at streetsafenewmexico.org for creating and maintaining this list and working hard to keep sex workers safe in the land of enchantment. Time suck. Top five takeaways. And that's it. Uh, The shroomed and doomed West Mesa Bone Collector suck. It's done. I hope you enjoyed it. Wow. Uh, I had to take a few, few stops. I'm still... Uh, how long is I can't remember what what how long it's been since I took uh took some stuff I don't know two hours what time did we start the episode three hours about two hours it's been about two hours two hours that's right two o'clock woo still still moving still moving on up uh hope you enjoyed this I gotta say it, it does it does it cra- just cracks me up that alcohol is legal 
And this stuff is illegal. Because, you know, a lot of people, you know, do a lot of violent stuff with uh, alcohol. Uh, just like domestic violence, all that kind of stuff. Man, this stuff, I, I feel like if more people were on this stuff, my own opinions, obviously, like everything on this show, but man, maybe be a little more peace. But maybe that's just because me. Maybe that's what I'm emanating out of my fucking subconscious. Maybe if you're a fucking psychopath, then I guess you would twist this into violence somehow. But man, I don't know how you could. Um, th- thanks again for la- allowing us to make it to 200 episodes. Long live the suck. Come a long way since the 100th episode. Uh, real long ways since the first episode was launched uh, almost four years ago. Oh, man. I feel like Matthew McConaughey right now in True Detective. Time is a flat circle. Uh, thank you again to the Time Suck team. Thanks to uh, Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe, Horsecock Johnson, Paisley, Bit Elixir, Logan and Kate Heath, Spicy Club, running badmagicmerch.com and the socials. Uh, thanks to the script keeper, Zach Flannery. Thanks to Liz Hernandez and her all-seeing eyes, you know, running the Cult of the Curious Facebook page, which, you know, a lot of friendships have been made there. A lot of, a lot of friendships being maintained, a lot of help being given. Over 20,000 people there now. Over 20,000 meat, meat sacks. It's awesome. Thanks to Beefsteak and everyone uh, over on the Time Suck Discord channel where you can link to easily from the Time Suck app, closing on 7,000 Discord users. Uh, big thanks to everyone who continues to rate and review the show uh, everywhere they can. Spread the suck. Uh, thanks for uh, reviewing and rating other projects I'm involved in as well. Uh, all that love it wouldn't change a thing. Three out of five stars ratings crack me up. You beautiful bastards are the best. Hail Nimrod. Uh, next week on Time Suck, my brain will be back and we'll revisit one of the most tragic moments in uh, modern American history, a turning point for American culture in many ways, the Columbine Massacre. I sadly don't know a lot about this story other than, of course, the most basic facts. A uh, year of planning turned into 15 minutes of carnage that would change America forever as two deranged teenagers turned their peaceful suburban high school, one of the safest places on earth previously, into every parent's worst nightmare, a killing field. 13 students' faculty were killed while another 21 were injured. The massacre was supposed to be much worse. At least that was the plan. The perpetrators planned to kill 500 of their classmates by using several types of bombs, guns, other weaponry. In their fantasies, they even had visions of storming neighboring homes afterwards, hijacking a fucking plane to crash in New York City, all kinds of crazy, unspeakable shit. Uh, it's a complicated story. Despite access to the shooter's diaries and two decades of hindsight, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. We will try and answer, though, as many questions as we can. If you join us next week for a detailed look into the massacre that, startled, that started the horrific trend of school shooting copycats in America. And now let's move it along to today's Time Sucker Updates. Updates. Get your time, sucker updates. Kicking things off with a shout-out request from Super Sucker. I feel like a fucking 70s rock DJ. For kicking things off with a little shout-out request. Uh, Super Sucker Max Berg. Max writes, Dan, my sister, is a huge fan of the pod. She's turning 30 this coming Sunday. At, uh, this coming Sunday, uh, July 5th. A sh- whoops. Uh, shout-out or even a short note in response. This would be huge. She's got the whole family listening to you. We love it. Thanks, man. Her name is Amanda. Ah, uh, well, happy late birthday, Amanda. Thank you. Sorry this is late. Max did send it in on time. So know that. May Nimrod and Lucifina give you the best 30th year ever. Uh, as, as I look into a screen that is now fucking moving through the air like it's a, its own cloud. Uh, now for some uh, super random extra info to add to the Egyptian god suck coming in from Top Shelf Sack and fish expert <laughs> Brad Gens. Brad writes, hello, Lord Suckington. While listening to the Egyptian god suck, you said, uh, how could a fish... Eat the penis of a god. Must have been a small incest wing. I, I did say that. Well, if you look up the Nile perch, which I will load a picture in with my email, you will see that uh, Osiris 
Could have had the biggest ween known to man in the fish. Still would have gobbled it right up like a Thanksgiving feast. Anyway, love the show. Keep on producing that sweet, sweet suck. Excuse me. Love, Brad. Well, thank you, Brad. Yeah. Had no idea there were perch that big before you sent that in. Uh, they get up to around six feet long and they can weigh over 400 pounds. That's, that's a big fish. That could eat a lot of ween. Maybe even a giant god ween. Good call. Inhale Nimrod. I think Nimrod's sitting right next to me right now. Uh, now a good COVID-19 update coming from a smart-ass sack named Cameron. Cameron, I'll leave your last name out since this is uh, inside info, writes, Hello, Time Suck team. First off, I want to say I'm a big fan of the show. Listen to it almost every day while I'm at work. Uh, thank you so much for what you do. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you. Uh, this might be a lengthy message, but I'm a lab tech at OU's Research Park, so I hear a lot about coronavirus research. I wanted to share uh, this with you guys because I think it's really exciting. They have found that the virus binds to ACE2 receptors in various body cells. It, it then enters the cell through endo, endocytosis, where it completes its viral replication. So there's a lot of research about blocking this receptor and or blocking its ability to replicate. One lab I know of has successfully uh, used their drug to kill COVID in a mouse model, I don't want to share too many more details because this hasn't been published yet and they have a lot more tests to do and still need to try it with human models, but they expect results in about a year. It looks very promising. Also, there is a protein, co uh, COV-2, that can act like a vaccine. By introducing the protein to the body, the body generates antibodies and memory of the virus. So if the person is in contact with the virus, they will have some immunity and be less affected. I know the virus is seeming to look a lot worse in America right now, so I wanted to share this positive news that scientists know a lot more about how the virus works. That may, you know, that is being reported right now. And that hopefully soon we will have a vaccine and cure for the public. Hail Nimrod. Well, hail Nimrod indeed, Cameron. I appreciate the work you do. And I appreciate you sharing some much needed positive news with us. I was also reading your notes. It was a, it was a beehive uh, for some reason. I was looking at things, uh, things were in a honeycomb. I was reading that. So that's fun. Uh, hope the progress continues. We all do. Now a positive message regarding this community, helping someone who lost their previous community. Super sucker Jordan. Uh, Rabbi explains, Jordan writes, Dearest Dan, Redeemer of the Curious, Savior of those who question. I started Time Suck about a year ago and it provides laughter and self-security. I'm an ex-Mormon who grew up in church, went on a mission, temple, etc. I researched many aspects of the history of the Mormon church and I realized it wasn't what I was taught. In fact, not even close. So at first I hid my feelings and thoughts for a long time. When I exposed my thoughts and beliefs, I did, it didn't go over well with my family at all. I visited with church leaders, family, friends, and my beliefs grew stronger and in opposition to the, the beliefs of the church. Because of that, it caused rifts and the belief in uh, the family that everything bad happening in my life it is caused by me leaving the church or there is that belief. It even caused major issues within my marriage. I felt the need to reform and be what everyone wanted. It felt like the easiest route to take to being respected again. It was a lonely, sad time for me. My first episode of Time Suck was the episode of the Mormon Church, and I loved it. Very accurate. I listened to more and more episodes of Time Suck, and I can say it has helped with this difficult faith transition and being true to my beliefs. I stand for what I believe and know it's wonderful being different and being what I believe and not what is expected. So thank you for your views and beliefs and helping this odd fuck feel some sort of belonging in my own world. And trust me, being an ex-Mormon in Northern Utah County uh, is extremely frowned upon and looked as, quote, bad. And my consistency has brought back respect with my family. They emphasize with my, they empathize with my position now. Yours truly from a faithful, obedient child of Dan, Mormon reference, Jordan Raby, or as I tried to convince my wife to call me Christ the Jord. My sacrilegious tone is strong due to my background. Christ the Jord. Uh, glad you found a new tribe. Uh, hopefully I, I read your email correctly. Um, 
uh, it became a curtain halfway through. That was also fun. Uh, that must have been very hard for you to leave your last tribe. Uh, I know a lot of Mormons, a lot of ex-Mormons listen to the show. I uh, hope you continue to make new friends through the show and just in life in general. Uh, and very glad that you seem to have recently worked things out with your family. And yeah, just happy that we could be part of, you know, a transition to a happier uh, place in your life. Hail Nimrod to you, sir. Now, this is, uh, this is a crazy message. Super weird Bruce Lee update from Super Sucker Christian. Christian writes, greetings, team captain of Bojangles time, suckers. My name is Christian. Last name omitted because it is impossible to pronounce for seemingly anyone not in our family. Uh, writing in from Oregon. I've been on and off uh, time sucker since the beginning, only recently getting a job where I can finally get in more suck. I've always wanted to write in, but never had a good reason until now. Listening to the Bruce Lee episode reminded me of a pretty funny story my parents told me a while back. They were at a store looking to buy a Ouija board. Note, my parents are not wackadoodles. It was for a joke. And were approaching the board game section when they overheard something very interesting. A seemingly well-to-do man was frantically talking to a sales clerk next to the board games. As they got closer, the only line they heard him say was, and I quote, where are the Ouija boards? I need to talk to Bruce Lee tonight. <laughs> Suffice to say, my parents took their time to allow him to finish collecting this purchase before picking up their own. I don't know whatever happened to that dude, but part of me hopes he found whatever he was looking for. Just a weird story I have about Bruce Lee. Hope you enjoyed it. Christian, out. Well, thank you, Christian. I did enjoy it. I hope that dude got to talk to Bruce. Uh, I wonder what was so urgent. Do you want to ask him about how Kareem Abdul-Jabbar managed to keep his fucking sunglasses on when Bruce Lee kicked him in the head about a thousand fucking times uh, during the game of death fight? Uh, glad you're back in the cult of the curious. You have more time for it now. Uh, and now one more message. Going to end on a message from an awesome and beautiful sucker who uh, wants to inspire others to leave their toxic relationships behind them. Juliet writes, hey, Time Suck team. As of today, I was finally able to separate from a really toxic narcissist in my life. It took a long time and a lot of tears to get through it, but I finally got there. However, for a long time, I didn't even know that this person I loved and looked up to was actually really terrible. So I was hoping that maybe there could be a suck on narcissism, toxic relationship stuff, things like behaviors to be careful of, what are the red flags to look out for, how to recognize a problem, some tips on how to deal with them, maybe even some good places, websites people can turn to for help. I don't know if this will uh, even be a good topic or be substantial enough for a suck. However, the start to my long journey of moving forward started by someone just telling me that I wasn't crazy and I didn't deserve to be treated that way. Maybe if the suck master himself shared some of that info, it might really help some other people. Anyways, I love you guys. Love the work you do. It's helped me through my roughest days. Thank you, Juliet. Uh, and yeah, thank you. Pause, Juliet. Uh, thank you, Juliet. Happy for you. Not sure, uh, not sure if that would make like an entire episode just based on that kind of personality, but, uh, you know, I would love to work in more of that info going forward, just in a variety of other sucks. You know, the wrong relationship in the extreme obviously can get you killed. Uh, much more commonly, it can just keep you from ever being happy, from ever reaching your full potential, from actually enjoying the time you have here on earth. Life's short. Don't spend yours with an asshole. There's plenty of good people out there you can enjoy your life with. Find one. Let's get Lindsay in here, actually, right now. Speaking of good people, right? Some people wouldn't even want their partner to bend their minds a little bit. Right now, Lindsay's totally supportive of it. Queen of bad magic. Here she is. Hi. I didn't, I, I didn't have to use you really. Things I, got weird. You had to help me. You had to help me outside of the episode. You had to help me find the bathroom. There was a lot of help. There was some weird, well, there was window washers on ladders, <laughs> which isn't normally how it is out there. True. So I didn't know if it was. There was that. And then also you've been really obsessed with your glasses being clean. I know. I got it. Well, because of the light. If my glasses are perfectly. Oh, now, now things look very different over there. Oh, how, uh, what does it look like now? It's if you stare at one place for too long, things start to shift quite a bit. It, it depends on what you're talking about. 
If you're talking about, like, if I was talking about, like, Bruce Lee, then it became Tibetan temples for some reason. <laughs> oh, okay, mm-hmm. It's like my subconscious imprinting textures on whatever I'm looking at. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You got a good little aura around you, not even I, usually I, say aura. I do have a good aura. You know what? What? I knew you were fucked up when I said, do you want some crystals? And you said yes. Yeah, I'm in a super good mood. You guys, there are so many crystals on Dan's desk. And if you listen to Scared to Death, you know how much he hates them. Mm-hmm. Right now, now, now that you said that, yeah. now I feel like I'm inside of a crystal. <gasps> What's it like? It's nice. Sparkly. Mm, everything's just kind of chill. And that's what crystals do. Good, good. Uh, Juju. To uh, to quote many many wackadoodle good vibrations. Okay. Good. Don't take them orally or anally. <laughs> this one's for your booty. Thank you, scriptkeeper Zach. No, it's not. That's <laughs> too sharp for a booty. But this one's pretty soft. <laughs> I don't want any of those crystals going inside oh, of me? That was a nice message you read. It was. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of nice messages. We got a, we got a lot of nice people listening to the show. People like you. I hope, I hope they still do after this episode. <laughs> I think it's going to be okay. Okay, good. And keep on sucking, everyone. I'll get out of the time circuit. You stay here. Oh, yes, okay. sir. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. I'll be down here. <laughs> so that's all for today. Hope, I hope it made sense. Don't do meth. Uh, if you have to be a sex worker, please move to Nevada. And no pun intended when I say this today, uh, keep on sucking. This no silly. <laughs> Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.